Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Welcome to episode 135 of the Galen Trombley Show. Um, the man today, my, my guest, um, I've known um, probably for about 10 years now when I first got into real estate. I met you very a long, long time ago. It feels like um, when I didn't know a whole lot of what was going on. I was a, I was a young kid um, and you were always a name that was synonymous with real estate. And as I've gotten older and I've started to learn a little bit more about the history of the area, your name... Um, in the last handful of decades has, has it's kind of always thrown out there as I think someone that was a mover and shaker and uh, had a lot to you know do with the success of the area moving forward. Um, so my guest today is Mark Barry. You're very kind, but you failed to disclose how we first met. I still remember. I, you were working in an ice cream stand on Route 9. Yes. And you contributed to my addiction and you sold me a large vanilla and I've been eating ice cream ever since. Actually, I was eating it before, but so one I, of my I, I got you on that streak. That's what that's what <laughs> yeah. got you. So yeah. I was the okay. You were so my pusher. That's so. At least hopefully, don't get you to like a type two diabetes level. My like dealer. Could, yeah. No, I'm I'm pre diabetic. There you go. Okay. So so the uh, yeah. So again, my career has been ice cream and real estate. So I I don't have a great big combination. Background. Before that was mowing lawns. Like it's yeah. not. I don't have a whole lot of like skill sets. I guess. But um. So you're actually the trifecta of CDC because we've had. Matt Boyer on. We've also had Alex Berry, who I'm, I'm sure you know pretty well. I assume you saved the best for the last. And well, I was gonna say you guys are all—all all of you guys are very nice in the sense that I think you downplay how good you all are. Um, Matt was basically saying he's kind of like the weak link, and then Alex was kind of saying, "Well, I take you know information from Matt and my dad and everything else." And and Alex is, is a a very smart. Um, talented young lady that's been doing a lot she's the smartest one of the three of us trust I, me <laughs> I, I no no well knowing matt i'll say yes the answer is yes so um uh, but so mark people that do not know you kind of give us a little background on who you are sure. um your role kind of in the community kind of what you're doing now and then we'll deep dive into all of it well uh, like you i'm a native of the north country i went to plattsburgh state and somewhere along the way i picked up a master's in business and then some um but when I first got out of college, I went to work for Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. So like you, I was a salesman from this day one. And uh, I eventually left them, and I went to work for a consulting firm out of Buffalo, although I opened up an office here in the North Country. And it took me about 18 months to figure out the difference between what the consultant was paying me and what he was getting from our clients. So in March of 1981, I opened up my own consulting practice. And I've never looked back. Over the years, I had a consulting practice in economic development, in immigration, in uh, economic development marketing, or just marketing. Eventually, I got into real estate. And, uh, and to bring the story to an end, I think it was in March of 2011, I decided to wake up one morning with a ruptured brain aneurysm, chased it down with three strokes, and uh, it took me a while to recover from that. I couldn't talk, couldn't walk, couldn't even hold my spoon for my ice cream. It was very devastating. 
And uh, but I graduated from a wheelchair or a walker or a cane, and now my wife can't shut me up. <laughs> and um, I sold the last half of my business to Matt Ware, the real estate company. My daughter's still there working as marketing person. And uh, every now and then she calls me and tells me how tough the real estate business is, and I tell her how grateful I am that I sold it. <laughs> so, so, um, so going. Let's go, let's go back to the beginning. So you you mm-hmm. you said 1981. You opened your own your first consulting company. That's correct. Um, what got you? Did you? What, what was your plan? I guess from high school going into college. Like, what did you want to do? I just assumed after four, well, three and a half years. I did it rather quickly of majoring in political science that someone was going to tap me on the shoulder and ask me to run for the United States Senate. Uh, needless to say, I was rather disappointed. And at the same time, I had been working at Bennett's Toy and Hobby Shop. You're too young to remember that. Yeah. It was an establishment, I mean, I don't remember that. Sure. It was establishment on Market Street. And I worked on about, according to the owner at the time, about 10,000 bicycles because I worked there from the time I was 14 to the time I graduated from college, paid my own bills through college. I was one of nine kids. And... Um, so when that didn't happen, I, I got solicited by Metropolitan to go to work selling uh, life insurance. And for the first six months, I damn near starved to death. And I remember my sales manager, a great manager named Tim Rabbit, who told me if I didn't start selling, that they'd have to let me go. But I, like the Trombleys and your dad especially, uh, believed in relationship marketing. And I was making a lot of friends. In the next six months, I sold more insurance than anybody had ever done in Plattsburgh at the time. And uh, that was the beginning of my insurance career. And but for a, a guy that was higher up in management, I didn't like. I'd probably still have been there for a while. So, so everything kind of happened by chance back then. Like you kind of just got your foot in the door. It was kind of an option. You took it, and then it kind of worked out a little bit. Well, when when you have a character de- defect, which in my case is I don't respond well to supervision, you, the only alternative most of the time is to form your own business, mm-hmm. be your own boss, so to speak. And that's, that's what I did. When I left the consulting company, I uh, decided I'd hang up my own shingle. I borrowed $15,000 from a bank, which my mother had to co-sign for the loan. How, I, how old were you? Oh, my God. In 1981, 54, I'm no, yeah, 27 years old. Okay. And um, so... Um, Bought the money, bought a, a, a portable computer, which back then weighed 100 pounds. is about three feet long, one foot and a half high and two feet wide, and started doing uh, fleet maintenance for large uh, fleet owners, like school buses and bus, bus company owners, stuff like that. Sold our software to the uh, city, uh, state of New York and made a little bit of money. And then I was I had an office on Lake Street and Rouse's Point, and I got involved in the local chamber of commerce. And every time some Canadian would go to the post office and say, where can I get a warehouse? Or, you know, how do I get my people across the border? They would say, well, go see the chamber of commerce. Mark Berry's over there and he'll help you out. And I did. And after a while, it finally dawned on me, I might be able to make some money doing work visas, uh, doing marketing, doing real estate. And over the course of the next 30 years, that's what I, I got, got into, uh, mostly by accident. So what drove you into the consulting business? Probably uh, the first consultant I ever worked for out of Buffalo. He was making a lot of money. Uh, he had a lot of stuff on his stationery they had never done before. And I realized then that the secret of consulting is, is not having a lot of knowledge, just having more knowledge than your clients do. And by that time, I knew quite a bit about transportation, so that was natural, using computers to uh, run large fleets. And then the economic development work and the uh, marketing work that I was doing, the immigration work, I just knew more than my clients did. And they were more than happy to pay me for that extra knowledge. How would you gain that knowledge? Well, you know, I'll tell you, I was just telling you a story to Alex yesterday. Um, I had um, 
I'd been involved in the Plattsburgh Chamber of Commerce, which at the time hadn't done an awful lot in the Northern Tier. But they had a new direct, executive director named Roz Leahy, and she was smart, and she got me involved. And she sent me a lead for a, a Canadian business that needed some space. And, uh, and when I nailed the lead down, and they went to 10,000 feet at the building where my son-in-law, my daughter now live, okay, yep, yep. A 30 Bridge Road, uh, I put an, a thing in the paper, and I credited the Chamber of Commerce in Plattsburgh. Well, that started the end. Of, anyway, this nice guy who was running a, a company called Catman, Called me one day. He said, Mark, they won't let me in. I said, what do you mean they won't let you in? He said, I'm stuck at the border. I said, why are you stuck? He said, they say I need a work visa. I said, well, I'll do the paperwork. I'll get back to you. So I'll never forget. I did my three visas. All of them got denied by immigration. <laughs> cost me $250 just to appeal their decision. Uh, I'd only charged him $250 Canadian, so that wasn't a profit-making deal. But I did the visas. And then my office mate at the time, Henry Van Acker, an attorney who since passed away, bought a flyer into my office said, here, if you're going to do immigration, do it the right way. And I bought a book that was about three inches thick, cost me two another $250, and I learned how to do immigration by reading that book and by trial and error and being very careful. And uh, next thing you know, I got another client, another client. And uh, then when you do immigration, sooner or later they ask you if, they, if you've got any space available to lease. And back then we had a lot of warehousing companies. For a while, Champlain had more warehousing than I think any place in the county did. And uh, they started out with minimum wage jobs. But guess what? Warehousing turns into assembly, and assembly turns into manufacturing. That's why we have a pretty good-sized industrial park in Champlain right now. So so from the board, and I guess when you say growing the business, was it a lot of just word of mouth? Was it reputation? Like well, this guy, like them going back to the Canadian, other Canadian companies locally saying, hey, this Mark guy can yeah. help you. Well, initially it was just being a part-time secretary. And uh, then I went to a United Way breakfast, and I sat across the table from a guy named Ralph Weir and another guy whose name shall be mentioned, and they both petitioned me to find jobs for their son, but only one of them followed up, Matt Weir. And so uh, he was just coming out of college, and I said to Matt, I said, in six months, I'm either going to give you a raise or a pink slip, because I don't know if we're going to pull this off or not. And he had a choice between working for the family appliance business, and I guess I was a little bit less boring than washers and dryers, so he went to work for me. And it turned out to be, the, other than my wife, the smartest decision I've ever made in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Matt is a brilliant man. Uh, he's a good marketer. He's friendly. He's fun to be with. And he's smart. And I dragged him everywhere. I don't care where I went, I dragged Matt. He was like my shadow. And he took notes, and he learned. He learned very fast. And uh, so then the business started to grow. We, we put together a plan, the immigration business grew, the consulting business grew, and he's been with me ever since. And when did CDC start? Oh, you would ask me that. Because well, I, uh, officially it started in March of 1981. That's when I opened my business. Back then it was called Mark Berry and Associates, even though I had no associates. <laughs> Sounded he, good, though, right? Yeah, it did. And eventually it became Champlain Development Corporation. Was Did Matt do... The consulting before you guys did the real estate, before you guys did commercial real yes. estate? Yes, Matt was a, and well, maybe not now because the laws have changed, but he was a top-notch immigration consultant. He knew everything there, there could be known about legal immigration, and he learned it, we both learned it together. Yeah, because I, I had asked, oh, I mean, Matt's been on, and, I, and, I, and I'm trying to like remember the whole storyline, because I know he said he came in, he was a young guy at the time when he, when he joined. just recently graduated. Yeah, and he kind of kind of said about the same thing, we just kind of, by... by you know, kind of joined Mark. Neither of us knew if it was going to pull it off. And then it just, he was right. you know, and here, here we are, what, you know, 35 plus years later, whatever it might be. And 
he's still doing very well. and He's doing very, very and, well. And, of course, now he's just got the real estate business. I did offer to sell him the immigration business, but mm-hmm. he was too smart to buy it. Yeah. So it, sold it somebody else. So um, so what was, what was the idea with uh, CDC? Was that just a natural transition from the consulting? Well, what had happened was over the years, we had done a lot of immigration business. And um, we saw a lot of real estate deals going right across our desk. We were putting buyers together with sellers, and there was either a realtor or a lawyer or an owner making a lot of money. And I said, this is ridiculous. And so I went to a young realtor by the name of Joey Trombley, and I said, I'm getting my license. Would you hold it for me? And he said, yes, he would. And he knew I was interested in commercial. So back then, I don't know if that's still the case, but if you did enough real estate transactions, you could get your broker's license simply by it still proving, is, yep. Yeah, with a number of points. So I think I had my license with Joey for one year, probably did one deal, and he got a small percentage of it. And then I was a broker all by myself. And that's how we got started. And uh, ever since that point, Joey would refer commercial stuff to me. I would refer residential stuff to, to him. And we were both, I went to school with his brother, Larry. Yep. Just saw him in Florida not too yep. long ago. And um, we were both North Country kids, bootstrappers, and, you know, just common sense and dollars and sense. That's how we made our decisions. And I think even Joy was a little bit skeptical that I could make a living doing just commercial real estate in Clinton County, New York. Well, the fact is we were making a living doing immigration work, so we had plenty of time and money to let the real estate business grow. And within a couple years, we were doing all right. And now I, I like to think the CDC is still king of the hill when it comes to commercial real estate. I, I mean, being in, yes, I was going to say, being in, you know, the real estate the way we are, I I probably communicate with Alex and Matt, I would say monthly about commercial deals. I mean, not saying like we're putting deals together, but it's inquiries on deals or sure. reaching out or what do you guys mm-hmm. caught in the pipeline? And, um, you know, I, I think I, I still even know they're not on the MLS. I kind of use them. Like I have a good relationship with both of them. So it's like if I need, to, and they're, they're really good. And Alex actually called me the other day about, um, an issue and ask my opinion on it. It's like, you know, you kind of work hand in hand to help each other out. Um, the Now, CDC, again, I know um, like your, your monikers, we don't sell homes, which everybody, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny when, when you see it locally, people know it. And I think if people don't know it, they get taken off guard. Like, wait, they're real estate, but they don't sell homes, but not meaning, not realizing that's commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the thought process behind you know, we're going to completely go into that niche or that niche and just we're going to hammer out the commercial. I have to take all the blame for that. And when I first approached Matt about that, I think he, along with a lot of other people, thought I was crazy because there were no commercial-only realtors south of all, north of Albany at the time. I don't think there were any in Burlington. There might have been a few in Vermont, not very many if there were. And uh, the plain fact of the matter is that when I first got my real estate license, as I mentioned to you before the show started, I sold a home by accident. What a pain in the neck. Uh, I would say even lower than my neck. And I said, I'm never going to do that again. I mean, you're working with a, a house mother, a housewife, whatever, or a husband and wife team. And I don't care what kind of house it is. It's never perfect. And I just didn't have the patience. So blame me for it. So I said, on the other hand, I could bring a guy through 10,000 square feet of warehouse space, and I don't care what question he asked me, not just the, the number of docks and the ceiling heights, but how to get his people across the border. I knew the answer. Yeah. How to get his equipment across the border. I knew the answer. 
I was at the time doing workshops and seminars all over Canada and here in upstate New York too on how to do business south of the border, getting paid for it. My first workshop was at the uh, Dorval Hilton at the airport. 250 Canadian businessmen, mostly CEOs, packed the room to listen to me and paid me money for my big mouth. And so it was much easier for me to sell commercial real estate. So commercial real estate only was just a hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah. So, um, and I think it's like it's brilliant. Obviously, it's a risk at the time, but then it's like it's paid off because. Well, in retrospect, it looks brilliant, but at the time, it wasn't. Trust me. <laughs> it was what? Not a. It was a risk, right? Yeah, a big risk. Yeah, big and, risk. And, and you kind of look back at it now, and it's like it pays off. But you keep, you know, again, you find that that niche, and you kind of just run with it. The, the I, again, I've. I've done some commercial deals. I've, if I had to take all the deals I've done, I've done 99% residential. So my condolences. Yeah. My, 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 uh, I just hope that it's it's making me grow, grow as a better person. But yeah, the, I I, I do love the aspect of, I do find a lot of, um, reward in helping people with a home because to me, like a home, there's way more emotion to it. There's way more sentiment to it. Commercial, there might be a little bit of emotion if someone's opening their storefront. It's a big deal for them. But at the end of the day, they're looking at it through numbers. It's a business deal. It's a business, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look at 10,000 square feet, they don't care how it really looks. How does it function? What's the cost? What's the, what's, you know, what's the, what's the cash flow? What's the expenses? All, all the stuff that you need to factor in to make a good decision, you completely strip away the, the uh, like I said, the emotional aspect of it. So people, to me, in, in commercial, they're making decisions with a much clearer like black and white standpoint and it's easy because I think when you or say easy but when you're negotiating you take away the emotional aspect where sometimes people don't think clear when their emotions are hot or they're heavy or whatever and that is always uh, I find that from the real estate standpoint when you're dealing with um, you know buyers and sellers and homes and selling you know a house they've lived in for 30 years or you know whatever the case may be we do a lot of psychology it's a lot of you know I think I, I never took a psych class in college I would I'm pretty darn close to having a bachelor or master's degree in psychology. I would say a PhD. I think, going back to your dad again, uh, I think he had an emotional IQ that I never had. Yeah. And that emotional IQ enables you to deal with people on a personal decision about buying their first home or their second or third home. I didn't have it. I still don't have it. I don't have the patience for it. I can barely handle my wife and my four children, much less some stranger wants to buy their for their first home. You're cut out for it. Your dad was cut out for it. And that's probably the biggest single reason that I didn't go into the direction of residential real estate. I knew you could make money at it. I saw a lot of other successful people, including your father, who was exceptional at it, probably still is. But I was just, you didn't have the emotional IQ necessary to deal with people like that. And that was good, and a good awareness on your part too, to say, "Hey, this is this is a weakness. Here's a strong suit, and let me just kind of let me tap into the I strong." I think suit. as Dirty Harry once said, "A man's got to know his limitations." Yeah, I know mine. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> you're, you're smart about it. So um, now, how has business changed from? And you got out. You said about two thousand. You sold about it, ten years ago, March. Okay, so how had business changed for you from the? let's call it the 80s all the way to 2010. Like what was the difference that you saw in the area? What was the difference you saw in in commercial? What was the difference you saw with U.S.-Canadian relationships? I saw differences on a number of levels. I was telling you a very able assistant out there, one of the differences is technology. And I uh, very freely confess to being a technological Neanderthal. I still have a flip phone, which I managed to turn off before I got in. Okay. But I have an iPad, so don't dismiss me entirely. 
Uh, so I, you don't, you're too young as your assistant is too young to remember the old days. IBM made a selectric, electric typewriter that had a backspace erase button. Okay. So if you typed an E instead of an I, you can hit the backspace button and the E would be magically lifted off the page. I'm not digressing. I'm, what I'm telling you is te- all the technology could have come to a grinding halt at that point. Mm-hmm. Then the little bastards had to come up with computers and screw my life up for the rest of my life. I don't like computers. I deal with them. So anyway, that was one thing that changed was the technology. It made everything faster. I mean, people expected instant answers to the fax machine, and then came emails. They wanted them right away. So the pace of business, I thought, changed rapidly from this old guy that I used to be, or young guy that I used to be. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted instant answers. And so thank God I had Matt on board and I had a full-time assistant at the time. We could keep up with that big, that was probably the single biggest change. The pace of business went from a leisurely walk to an outright, you know, run. Oh, everything every day was a sprint. I think the other thing that changed, it took many, many years. But when I started, the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Act had just been uh, passed. Canadians were totally ignorant about how to do business south of the border. All they knew was that the marketplace south of the border was 20, 30, 40 times bigger than the one they were playing with up in Canada. So when I started, uh, that was a novelty for Canadians. So we were able to talk to them about work visas and real estate. And all we had to do, we figured it out pretty quickly, is educate them. And when they got confident enough and when their IQ about doing business south of the border went up, they settled here. And not surprising, we now have, what, 275, 285 Canadian-owned and controlled companies right in Clinton County alone. I would dare say back when that number was even 250, probably 95% of them were my clients, either for real estate or immigration or some sort of consulting business. Uh, So that changed because back then, there's this tremendous ignorance on the part of my Canadian friends. Now they're very sophisticated. Now if I did a, a, a workshop on how to do business south of the border, I'm not sure I'd get 250 executives in the same room at the same time. Maybe a half dozen, maybe a dozen. Even then, some of them would just be hangers-on, that type of thing. So that's changed over the years. And I think the other thing has changed is the North Country. Pre-Gary Douglas, before Gary Douglas, getting a res- respect at a bank for a Canadian Respect by tourists for Canadian, uh, respect by locals for Canadian tourists. None of it happened. I, I can remember bringing a Canadian in a bank and getting chased out of the bank by the manager because you don't want to do business with a, with a Canadian. They had bad names for him back then, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about discrimination. We discriminated against Canadians 30 years ago. We didn't like them. And now, over the last quarter of a century, we realize they're our bread and butter. We need their visitors, we need their investments, we need their business. That's changed a lot over the years. I think those three things are the biggest change, the technology, the knowledge of our Canadian friends, and then the change in the laws between the two countries. Um, how did you get connected with the chamber? Like, what, what drew you to the chamber? And the reason I say that is, um, I've had Gary Douglas on, mm-hmm. which I, I even to this day was one of my, um, you know, I guess most excited I've been for an interview was because I can listen to Gary talk for hours. I just, smartest I, man in Clinton County. I, I, yeah. And I, I think that some of the stuff he, he talks about while very simplistic in nature, he always talks about himself being a strategist and, and like mm-hmm. really trying to find, you know, our competitive advantage. Um, and the reason I say that is your name came up multiple times in the, I believe in the podcast. And if not, was it, you definitely came up in the podcast. If it wasn't multiple times in the podcast, Conversations that it, or things I've heard of Gary talk and I heard him talk a couple of weeks ago, um, 
kind of doing a young professional thing at the chamber. Mm-hmm. Gary mentioned your name also, you know, kind of in a, in a story. He like, blames me for the job he took. I, he, I al- hired he, al- him. he always says, yeah, he goes, Mark Chairman hired me. I'm, I'm, he goes, I'm not sure what I want to do when I grow up. He goes, I may, he goes, I may look at doing something different. He goes, we'll, we'll see how long this lasts. So, <laughs> but I have all the, all the respect in the world of Gary, but yeah, when you say the smartest man in Clinton County, I mean, he, he amazes me with some of the stuff that he just kind of off the cuff and where mm-hmm. his mind is at because it's such at a bigger level. Sure. Um, but how, like, how did you get involved with the chamber? What was your relationship with Gary? What, um, cause you guys went through, I mean, early nineties to even 2010. I mean, that was a big, well, a lot of stuff happened. My relationship with the chamber actually predates Gary and it was not a good relationship. I mean, I'll be very honest. A lot of the people involved are either passed away or left the area, but the Plattsburgh, Chamber of Commerce, and that's what they called it back then, ignored the Northern Tier. Rouse's Point and Champlain did not exist as far as they were concerned. And so there was very little relationship to the point where our county legislator back then, Larry Paquette, and I felt that we were being deliberately ignored. And so we wanted to form our own economic development agency. We did already had our own Chamber of Commerce, the Rouse's Point Champlain Chamber of Commerce. We had over 100 members ourselves just in the Rouse's Point Champlain, Chazy, Moores area. So my first relationship with the chambers we now know was a poor one. And it wasn't until a new executive director came along named Roz Leahy who reached out to the Northern Tier. She was a smart lady. And I welcomed her. She put me on one of her committees. Next thing you know, I was on the board. Then we got another executive director named Amy Whitehead, who was just as smart, also was very inclusive. And then when Amy decided to leave, I think she went to work for a telecommunications company. Uh, I was then the incoming chairman of the board, and we had to hire a new executive director. And Gary Douglas had just left uh, a very influential congressman's employee in uh, the Saratoga Lake, Georgia, I think, somewhere in there. And anyway, um, he had deliberately made the decision, you may deny it now, that he wanted to go to work for a chamber of commerce. And he liked our chamber, and I liked him. And there was some objection, I think he probably knows now, several members of the board of directors didn't want to hire him. They thought he was too political. And my attitude was, that's what we need is political. We need somebody that understands that the North Country has been getting the short end of the stick for 100 years. We need somebody that hits above his weight in Albany and Washington, D.C. Gary Douglas, in my opinion, was custom-made for the job. He very quickly uh, learned about the so-called Canadian Connection. He even blessed me with the name as being the captain of the Canadian Connection. We hit it off great, uh, and he has done, as far as I'm concerned, if he's done anything wrong, it was just admitting that I once knew him. Everything else he's done to me is perfect, and that's why the North Country, if you go from Albany all the way through Warren County, I mean, Clinton County is a is an island of success compared to many other parts of New York, even during recessions. We can thank the Canadians for it, but we can thank Gary Douglas for it most of all. Yeah, and, and so and Gary always talks about punching above his weight. That was you know mm-hmm. that was definitely a, a thing or a, a slogan he said multiple times. But that was part of the strategy. And um, his main his main thought was, hey, we're we got to tap into. And he, and he put in a good, good point. He goes, if you live outside Atlanta, an hour outside Atlanta, you would call yourself an Atlanta suburb. Mm-hmm. If you're outside LA, same thing. Take any major city in the United States. Well, we're an hour from Montreal. Why aren't right. we Montreal suburb? And right. he thought, well, so there's a border. He, and he kind of he says it in jest. Like, he coined that phrase first, Montreal suburb. That was Gary's phrase. Yeah, and, I, and it, it rings true, but he's gone from saying it to proving it. And, and you know, now it's to the point where they have relationships with the Montreal Chamber of Commerce. And it's like, 
this is like a partner with them. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like, hey, Gary, Sue, whoever you need at the chamber, reach out. They're going to help you, especially when it comes to economic development. You know, Namstran is a new thing that Joel's kind of spearheading, mm-hmm. or Joel is now the director of, and trying to promote the manufacturing, try to promote the you know the the, the companies coming down here. Sure. And we've seen a, a pretty good boom in the last probably decade. Um, but you know, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, Galen, but I go back to a time before Gary Douglas, and I was at a public forum, and I won't mention any names, and I talked about the fact that we should market our area in Canada, north of the border. I was laughed at. The director of economic development at the time ridiculed me publicly and said the idea of going into Canada for new business and industry was ignorant and totally ridiculous. Instead, we were doing economic development in places like New Jersey and Ireland. Mm-hmm. And the last time I checked, you had very few businesses here in the North Country from Ireland or New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Okay, Gary recognized instantly that that was uh, a great source of new business and industry and he capitalized on it. he's been doing it ever since and now we have this transportation hub in clinton county now we have all these canadian owned and controlled companies canada our canadian friends have gone from the least respected employer to in many instances the employer of choice in clinton county and that's thanks to the effort of a lot of people over many years led by gary douglas we talked about doing the the whole border project where gary's like we need whatever the number was, 150 million. They're yes. like, well, we'll give you, he goes, no, it's 150 million. Like mm-hmm. that's what we're not leaving with a penny less. Um, that, and I, I think the, I think that the number is like 10% of the county get up every day to go to a Canadian company. Actually, it's closer to 24%. Is it higher now? Yes. Okay. Because like I said, the well, number- It used to be. I'm a, I'm, I've been down yeah. in Florida for six years. So. Yeah. The, the numbers might have changed, but it, it, the, I mean, it probably is that because I, I don't think we've lost any company. I mean, the companies are coming faster than they're leaving. Mm-hmm. So um, now- Jumping back, and the reason I bring this up is I actually didn't know this, but I'm not surprised. Actually, I did know this. There's two, two actually two things I want to ask you about this. You were ahead of uh, the park. Is it park committee or park back in the day? Plattsburgh uh, Air Base Redevelopment Corporation. And that that came about after the closure of the base. The flag had gone down. They had gone through uh, one executive director, a guy named David Holmes. There okay. was an interim guy, and then they were desperate enough to hire me after that. So I stayed there for about two years. So I remember watching on Hometown Cable. Oh wow! And and this is so. This is something. It's kind of like a. I don't do it often, but every once in a while we'll put it on TV, like on YouTube, and we'll just like I'll look up old sport games. You know, me and my, my wife. Um, um, you know, Gina Rosenbaum. Yes, of course. Okay, so a great Gina, athlete of Plattsburgh State. Yeah, so Gina, my son had a crush on her once. The, well, he's a smart man then. She, yeah. So <laughs> the uh, but it was um, her and she played at Seton. So yes. like and, and obviously you know Jerry and and mm-hmm. so trying to uh, try to find those old games but then all of a sudden you start coming across I like subscribe to the chamber and they get you start seeing don't tell me you watched one of my old old interviews with Calvin not one of the old interviews I actually I, I was <laughs> I, maybe bored enough to watch a, a little bit of a board meeting so it was you Marion Bordeaux was there Gary oh, Douglas yeah. was there uh, there's a few names I, I don't even recognize um, and you were kind of in a little room meeting about park and mm-hmm. how was that time period because obviously that was we weren't I don't even say we weren't handed a good deck. We were handed a deck of cards that sounded like a failure, but it's Gary talked about it's opportunity. And I think, um, what was the mindset of the area back then when something as big as the base left? Because we probably lost 10% of the population, right? There's Roughly. a lot of doomsayers. Uh, but like Gary Douglas, I believe that it, it could be, uh, instead of our, our greatest failure, our, our, our most uh, glamorous success. 
And it was. I mean, the reuse story at Plattsburgh Air Force Base is one of the best in the entire country. And I only take a small portion of the credit. I was there just for a couple of years. But it's a very political job when you do economic development for a municipality, in this case, Clinton County, the city of Plattsburgh, the town of Plattsburgh. And I'll never forget when the late Ron Stafford uh, talked to me about the job. And we were talking about going on the payroll. And I said, no, I'm not going on the payroll. And he said, what do you mean? I said, no, you can sign a contract with my consulting company. Why? I said, because probably within two years, I will have burnt every political bridge I have, and you're going to fire my butt. And he did, <laughs> indirectly. Uh, and that's the way economic development goes in a political setting. But during those brief two years, I signed a couple dozen leases. I wasn't allowed to sell anything. I wasn't allowed to sell a home. I wasn't allowed to sell a building. All I could do was lease it, and even then, I needed approval from my landlords in Washington. But I turned the ship of state around. When I got there, we literally were bouncing checks at the local bank. Uh, we had no credit line. They had abolished it. We were uh, a year and a half behind in our draw from Washington and Albany. We were getting money from both the state and the feds. And because of the paperwork hadn't been filed, we weren't getting the money. So we turned that around. We started entertaining Canadian companies. We started doing uh, workshops down here for Canadians who wanted to come south of the board. We signed a bunch of leases. I think by the time I left, about 150 people working on the base, but we had projections for at least a couple hundred more. Moved the football a little bit further. And then the next guy came in, I think it was, it was my assistant, Dan Winicky. Uh, and all of a sudden, they could sell homes, they could sell buildings, they could destroy buildings, and he moved it even further. And uh, Gary Douglas is always behind the scenes, you know, making sure that we did it right. Uh, but uh, that was the mindset back then. Everybody thought this was going to be the, the doom and gloom of the North Country. Turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to us. What kept you guys going at that time? When you, like you said, checks were bouncing, things didn't seem like they were, you know, just kind of like, you know, climbing an uphill battle or back against the wall. I mean, was it just belief in the area? Was it just, you, you know, pride? You didn't want well, to see something go down? Well, to be honest, back then it was called the PIDC, and then it became Park, and they had such a long history of failure, I felt I couldn't do much worse. So that was part of my incentive. The other incentive was that I knew what I was doing. By that time, I had been doing a lot of marketing and economic development all over the North Country and in other counties, as a matter of fact. I knew immigration. So all I had to do was go and solicit the Canadians, and many of them knew us anyway. And so now when they called me up, I didn't have to worry about a lack of inventory. I had 5,000 acres and a couple hundred buildings to lease to them. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty easy. It was just a matter of timing. But when you're in a political economic development stage, they expect a home run. They want to see the big employer come in with a thousand jobs. I got pretty close, lost them at the last minute, and so I had to go. And uh, it was a tough decision for me and a tough decision, I'm sure, for all the board members. But they moved on to the next guy and things kept moving and, and look where we are today. This base is, to, is developed. Yeah, so um, so I guess role in growing the economy for you, I mean, that's just something that you were always a part of. You're a big community member. You're a big community member, Northern Tier, a community member of Clinton County. Um, was that something you always you talked about relationships? Was that just a big thing to you? It's like, I got to It was know a people. very big thing to me. When I was in high school, my guidance counselor, she'll remain nameless, might still be alive. <laughs> uh, I told her that I would either go to Plattsburgh State or Potsdam, but it would be a lot less money if I went to Plattsburgh State and commuted from home. And this guidance counselor said, Oh, Mark, come on, you're too smart to stay here in the North Country. You should go to Albany or Washington. You should leave the area. Well, I didn't have. You know, the testicular fortitude or the brains to leave the area, honestly. Mm -hmm. But I also liked the North Country. So I was one of the few people in my graduating class that stayed in the North Country. In fact, 10 years after I graduated in 1972, I did a survey of my fellow graduates. And something like 75% of them left the area. So I was stubborn. Was this Northeastern? Northeastern. Okay. 
But when I first went there, I was at CCS, but it became Northeastern in 1972. They put the classes in 71. They put the classes together in 72. But it was a personal thing. It was almost a grudge. I wanted to be able to make a living in the North Country, my hometown. And I still feel that way. I admire somebody like yourself who was born and brought up in the North Country, like your father, Joey, like uh, many others, not enough. Your daughter? Think, yeah. Yes, my daughter. Yep. It's not easy making a living here. I mean, even real estate. It's an emotional roller coaster. Sometimes it's a financial roller coaster. It's easy to go to Washington and get a job or Albany or go to some big city like the Raleigh Durham area in North Carolina. It's not easy to carve out a living here in the North Country. And so it was a little bit stubbornness, a little bit pride in the North Country, maybe a little bit talent, uh, but I refused to stay. And so every chance I got to pump up the North Country, I did it. Every chance I got to create a job here in the North Country, I did it because I wanted the people that followed me to be able to do the same thing, my kids especially, and find it easier. But guess what? Three out of my four kids are not in the area anymore, yeah. just Alex. Yeah, and I think... Um, and we, me and Alex had this conversation when she was on. It's like at the one, one of, and I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I got, I grew up in the area, love the area, had, you know, and I, I think the reason, two reasons I didn't go away. Number one for college, I got out of college. I had no clue what I wanted to do. I went undecided. Not unusual. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I was just kind of one of those people that, um, I was an odd, I remember my dad giving me a couple books to read in high school mm -hmm. that were money, you know, business books, like just like books that I was typical 17 year olds probably not reading. And I kind of looked at him like, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm not going to get into student debt. So I went to Plastic State, had a, uh, you know, fairly good scholarship. And I was like, I'm just going to go. There's, there's no reason to go to a big, like a, a pricier school to say I went to a pricier school if I have no clue what I want to do. You were smart beyond your years. Yeah. Well, and that was something that even to this day, I'm like, thank God I did that. Cause it did get, it, I think it allowed me to survive some of my twenties, as you know, like surviving in real estate is not, not easy when I had barely any expenses it kept me afloat. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so part of it was that. And then as I got older, I was like, you know what? I, I want to have a family and kids someday. Like, and this was, I mean, this is 10 years ago. I was thinking these thoughts and, uh, well before I met my wife and it was the idea of like, I don't really want to move cause I want my parents to have grandkids and my grandkids to have grandparents. And, um, and I, I felt, I felt kind of a, a pull to stay near my family where I, you know, I didn't really, you know, go away. But mm -hmm. now, now that I've been here and I've kind of like, you know, I'm married. My wife's from the area. My kids live here. I'm like, I don't want to move. I like the area. And, and yes, we could grape about the weather. We could grape about a bunch of things. But at the end of the day, like, I mean, we're going into some of the greatest stretches of months, I think, anywhere that you could live. Like the summers up here are gorgeous. And the, even the falls, I love the seasons. Mm -hmm. But if I had to look and really, like you said, um, I take a lot of pride in the area, but I also take a lot of um, almost like an underdog mentality. I think if you're it's easy, like you said, to go to a city that's maybe established or has opportunity and just kind of go in. And for me, I like the I like the journey, the climb, the scrappiness of trying to like build something. Yep. And to me, you know, I've kind of done it with our company. I've tried to like really take the reins and, and try to grow it as fast as I could say as fast, but trying to just grow it and, and expedite the growth and build up our brand and build up our connections and everything else. But I want to do that at a greater scale, which would affect the area. I mean, not just Mm -hmm. on Realty, but um, that's why I spend a lot of time with other like-minded individuals. I spend time with the podcast, picking brains of people. Sure. I, spend, I spend time with people at the chamber. It's like, you know, networking because I want to build a relationship so that, you know, things, because I have a lot of friends, a lot of, you know, kids in their 20s and 30s that are, um, all want the same thing. And it's like, 
you get enough people with the mindset and you get this tidal wave of action. Well, the North Country, I think, has two advantages. Number one, we've always been insulated, probably because of the Canadian connection, maybe because of the lake. But we've never experienced the super, super economic highs that you might see like in the Raleigh, Durham, or North Carolina or other places. But we never really experienced the lows either that, that are uh, remarkable for ghettos and cities that have been destroyed for whatever reason. We've always been in the middle. And that's been an advantage for us. So while we've never been really rich, we've never been really poor either. I think the other thing is, and I didn't learn this till I left the area, is the economic IQ of the North Country. You know, when I went to Sebring, it's in Highlands County, Florida, and it's a nice place, believe me. But I found out during my short stint as a volunteer with the Service Corps of Retired Executives when I was trying to meet with businesses all over, I did it for a couple of years, that their economic development machine is not well-oiled like ours is. Mm-hmm. It does not move quickly like ours does, okay? It does not know what it's doing in many respects like ours does. You go there, there's three different chambers within five square miles, and they hate each other. Economic development is over here. Job creation is over there. Job training is over here. You know, the county's over there, and then there's three cities. It's so, it's not even bifurcated. It's fractured, their economic development. They don't speak with one voice, and you don't realize how important that is until you look back at Clinton County and go somewhere else. Thanks to Gary Douglas and many, many others, our economic development machine is a well-oiled machine. It's an effective machine. It's efficient. We put our arms around a Canadian prospect that comes in the North Country, and we give them a big hug, and they come here even sometimes when it doesn't make dollars and cents, but it makes common sense because they know that somebody here is going to take care of them. Somebody here is going to like them and respect them and do business with them. Those are two big advantages that we have in the North Country, and it's made it easier for younger people like yourself. Mm-hmm. I can view you as the next generation. It'll make it easier for your children to stay here in the North Country. I just hope it continues. Yeah, and that's kind of the idea as I look at, you know, your generation of people that have laid the groundwork and I think have gotten the train on the track kind of, or righted the path kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of look at our generation like don't screw it up, but take the baton and just keep building on it. And I think that, you know, we need, you know, I think we're in a transition point. You got you guys got us like here. Now it's like let's make sure that we continue and make sure that it's, this becomes sustainable and becomes followed and more of like, I want to say tradition, but it becomes something we just – it just is there. It's so established that it's gone through generations now because as you know, every generation, it now becomes a little more solidified that this is a thing. And then uh, my goal again is to leave the area better than I found it, which is my kids, my kids, friends, my, my, you know, my kids, kids, you know, go all the way down the line. In the meantime, it would help if Gary Douglas lives to at least 95 years old. Well, so I asked Gary, I said, Gary, I said, you're retiring. He goes, what did Gary say? I'll retire. I think when he said, I don't have fun anymore. Or I find something better to do, and and uh, you know, and of course Gary's Gary's always good for like a little a little joke about like, hey, you know, I, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but you know, right now this is this, this is working out so far, but we'll see. Gary but, has an addiction too, you know. It's not ice cream; it's a challenge. Yeah, I've never seen a man so hungry for a challenge and so worthy of a challenge as Gary Douglas. Uh, I like Gary a lot. Obviously, I'm a fan of his. But he loves a challenge. And I think the day the North Country has to start worrying about his departure is when Gary Douglas looks around and says, yeah, no challenges left. Yeah. Hopefully we're a long way from that day. Yeah. Yeah. Based on him, his, his, his mind has many, many, many more years ahead of him. That he's, Chuck he's Phillip. Yeah. So um, now, couple, well, actually, two, two more business questions. I wanna, we're going to completely flip, flip the script on you. Um, 
what's your thoughts on the border closing from like, and again, from your perspective of, um, you know, it's been a hurdle for us right now, but the border has been closed for many, 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 well, I mean, at this point over, well over a year, um, what, what do you think might be the negative ramifications of that? Or do you think that there really won't be? That's just kind of a little bit of a blip on the radar, but we, we'll get over it. Oh, I, I know that the border closing has hurt our economy. Mm-hmm. I know it's hurt at least one industrial real estate company. Mm-hmm. I mean, believe me, CDC is not suffering, but it hasn't helped that we can't get key people and uh, not so key people across the border and allow us to go up there and them to come down here. I think Canada could have done a better job. I'm trying not to get too political. I still want to sell a few books when I get older. <laughs> but uh, And I'm not in politics anymore. I'm certainly not running for office. But I think Canada could have done a better job uh, handling the, 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 the virus. And, uh, and I think so could the United States, to be honest. Uh, but closing the border, I don't think has helped anybody. I think it's hurt. And despite Gary's efforts, which have been yeoman-like, uh, and others, to get Trudeau and company to do something, I see it furthering. I think it's going to continue probably for at least a couple more months, but it's not helping the situation at all. It's not helping our economy. It's not helping our people, and it's not helping their economy or their people. When we were at this, uh, like I said, event a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. it was Gary and Billy, uh, Doug, uh, Billy, Billy Jones were yes. there, and uh, they were both saying it, and Billy's a little, like me, he's explaining it, but he's a little more, you know, um, political when he's, as he said, we said we need to order the voter. Gary, straight to it. This has to open. This is dumb. This is stupid. Like, I mean, Gary just, I mean, he cuts right through, you know, basically the bull crap and just gets right to it and says, this is. Well, I've never met Billy Jones, but he strikes me as a smart politician. But Billy's great. And, and he's I. He's probably more diplomatic he's than Gary He's a little Gary more diplomatic. And, and, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think Billy's also been doing it for a few years and Gary's been doing this for a few decades. So yeah. Gary's kind of like, listen, I got, I got, we're going to shoot you straight. Like the border's got to open. He was very vocal about mm-hmm. this is just crazy that it's closed and that there's not even a deadline or a talk for Well, it's become like the Berlin Wall. I mean, if we are the suburb montreal it's just like being on east and west germany yeah. it's become like the wall that's ridiculous yeah and and I, I i think it will happen but i think gary's big thing was you know we just need, we need to start having the conversation about opening and starting putting things into place like right now it's just like kicking the can down the road we're not even talking about I it i can't because, believe we might suffer an entire summer i say we i'm down in florida now but another summer, summer like this it's ridiculous i know and, and i mean from a from a selfish standpoint, I like going to Montreal. I like visiting Montreal. I like going to old Montreal. Uh, like, like, you know, like it just Quebec like... city, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just for the, 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 the tourist aspect or the, you know, but not even counting the business aspect, f- which is really the, yeah. what we need. In Florida, we've opened up. We opened up a long time yeah. ago. We They're got one of the, the mask, And we have the fewest casualties in terms of the virus. It, hasn't, it really hasn't been a bad decision. Ron DeSantis doesn't get the press he deserves for it in, in these days. But the fact of the matter is that Florida is doing very, very well. We've just used common sense. Distance, put on your mask, but don't be onerous about it. You know, the government's kind of let their hand. And we're a very senior population down in Florida. Yeah. So if anybody should be distancing and wearing a mask, it's us all us old people. Uh, and I think it's worked in Florida. I think it could work up here. But the as usual, government has to get the hell out of the way and let the private yeah. sector take over. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree on that. The uh, Now, my other question for you is... Do you think, because I have my opinions on this, but I want to hear yours on the real estate. Is there a real estate bubble right now? We're seeing this all around the country. We're seeing that this is a seller's market. It's certainly a seller's market up here, more than I've ever seen it um, in 10 plus years. Um, Do you think that we're in a real estate bubble? I've studied that probably more than you think I have. Okay. Uh, first of all, because I'm affected. My little villa, we went from a 14-room house in Mass Point, a little two-bedroom villa in Sebring. My little villa has increased 50% value in the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I've studied it because my daughter and my one of my best friends, Matt Boer, 
is in the middle of it. And so I'm saying, is this thing going to end? I lived through the first housing bubble, but I don't see the same things. I know Fannie Mae and, and Sunnie Mae are still lending money at pretty cheap rates mm-hmm. and at kind of loosey-goosey uh, credit guidelines, but it wasn't as bad as it was back in the first Yeah, yeah. 07, 08. Uh, I think, though, that uh, because we had a pretty good last three or four years in the economy, particularly in the stock market, there's more money out there chasing fewer homes. Um, but I just can't believe this isn't going to be cyclical. I think it's going to end at some point. But um, I've heard different things. Some people say it's going to end in six months. Other people say it's not going to run its course for another two or three years. And so the short answer to your short question is I don't know. So my, uh, at least from a real estate, I say bubble up in our area, the the problem what we're seeing is we have, okay, so we have, it's a seller's market. I mean, there's not a lot of inventory. There's a bunch of buyers looking. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Same I've been, in Florida. Yeah, and I mean, I'm seeing, I'm hearing way crazier stories. Like you said, uh, the North Country, our ebbs and flows are more moderate. We don't go, mm-hmm. the peaks and valleys aren't as, as severe. Right. And that, that rings true for real estate too. So when you start seeing these people in like, you know, Florida saying, the prices, I mean, it's gone up in two weeks. It's gone up $20,000 or a yeah. month because things just are appreciating like crazy. We're not seeing that as much, but the prices from a year ago are up 20%. And that's across, I mean, that's across the board. Some areas are higher, higher than others. That's significant taking, for the North Country. That's huge. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, remember the days would go up like a 2 or 3%. You're like, wow, that's a big, like 4% was like, wow, that's a huge increase from last, last year. I mean, the last couple of years have been like 10%, then I think it went 20%. And, COVID never really affected us. It really, it was kind of like you, you put a cork, you know, you put a, um, a cap on the bottle, shook it up for a couple months. And then June 1st of last year, you popped the cork and all mm-hmm. hell broke loose. But mm-hmm. the, the way I look at it is it's a supply and demand factor. So there's only a couple things that are going to happen. It's either we, we provide more homes, which are coming in the homes of being built and spec. That's not happening with the cost of building materials. Now not happening. People aren't, which is a good thing. People are not, that's not a good thing. But I'm saying people not moving out of the area is a good right. thing. But because of that, the homes are taken up. We're not, there's not as many people moving. Then then number three is, is there going to be a reason why people can't borrow money and buy and, and everything else? Well, that could happen. I've, I mean, the way I look at it is the only thing I can think about, because I don't think it's going to come from the banking industry, because seven, 2007 or eight. That my I've experienced every bank has learned a lesson because now to get a loan, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of documentation. They're following up with you literally up to the day of closing to check your to check your employment. I mean, it's it's gotten very um, strict, but people are now used to it. They know they kind of know what to expect and know the, how it works. The so banks you, have the regulators looking over their shoulders, so they got to be careful. Yeah, and it's now a norm. So I don't think the banking industry is going to affect real estate. I think if anything affects real estate, it's going to be something outside of real estate that affects the economy, which then affects buying power of, of buyers um, or forces people to sell or whatever. And when COVID hit, I was like, well, here it is. This is the pop. This is going to burst. That We got COVID. We got this. People are now not going to sell anymore. We're going to have all this issue with the economy. We came out even stronger, which I, I never thought. If you would have pulled me day one of the COVID shutdown, I didn't think we were, I thought it was going to be a big, we're going to start seeing mm-hmm. this drop. So I really don't know if it's, it always goes up and down. I just don't know when this is going to go down. I mean, I really think that we're going to go deeper and deeper into a seller's market for the next handful of years. I can tell you when it's going to go down. It's going to go down when the market, the buyers get priced out of the market. Like young people, for example. If you're under 35 and you're looking around for homes, my daughter being one Mm -hmm. of them, there's not much out there that is a good investment. Yeah. 
particularly Eric, you say you wanted to buy a, a two unit, two family house. Yeah. As in the return on investment is like one and a half or two percent. I mean, who the hell would want to buy a two cap? And uh, so I think that's going to happen more and more in the North Country and elsewhere. But what happened? What's happening right now reminds me of when I was I had an auction at the Plattsburgh Air Force Base. I was in charge. We had a lot of used stuff, and I hired Steve Martin, a great auctioneer. And we had an auction. I didn't go to the auction because like five thousand people showed up. I just stayed out of there. And at one point, Steve had to stop the auction because people were so excited, so emotional about all this stuff that they were paying more for used merchandise than they would have if they'd gone to Walmart or True Value and bought it brand new. And he stopped the auction. He said, folks, slow down a little bit. You're paying way too much for this stuff. It's not worth that much, which was, he was honest about. It. But they still overbid items mm. way above the value. And I think that's what's going on right now. The people that have the money are excited. I think they're more than willing to pay inflated prices for homes. But what's happened to those homes that make them worth 50% more or 30% more than they were two years ago? Nothing that I can see. Yes, the inventory has gone down, but that's going to be corrected. People have this thing. They think economic development, economic growth happens in a nice, smooth curve. It doesn't. It's Economic growth is a stairway. Mm -hmm. We're at the bottom of the next step. And until construction prices get a little bit closer to existing home prices, we're not going to climb that next step. And maybe the next step uh, prices of homes will be elevated. But the way it's been elevated now and the speed with which it's been elevated, I just can't see it lasting. And I think what's going to happen is the market for new homes is going to slowly go off, uh, to trail off because they simply can't afford it. If you're a young couple in Clinton County, New York, and you're looking at $250,000 for a home, a basic home, uh, it's hard to come up with that kind of money unless you've both got professional jobs. In Florida, they're selling trailers for $100,000. The it's ridiculous. Well, well, that and, and my concern, if it gets really bad, because I've started to see some stuff right now where we're too, we're, we're too severe in a seller's market, mm -hmm. where it's now there's certain things that are becoming unsustainable for the, for the industry and for other people. Um, but I look at it as... Kind of my worst fear is if do people decide to move away because they can't find homes here? You know, do people decide like, listen, I want to live here. I can't, you know, I, I can't live with mom and dad forever. It's hard. I can't rent anything. That's happened to the Adirondack Park, six million acres and no place to live. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's, uh, that's my fear that my favorite market was the market. I think it was like 2017 to 2018. It was, if we put buyers and sellers on a scale, buyers left, sellers right. We were slightly right, meaning slightly towards the seller's market's good. Mm -hmm. We're like 20, if you brought brought it down, we're like 20% sellers, 80% buyers, and that's too much. I mean, yep. if you got like a 60-40 favoring 40% uh, sellers, 60% buyers are closer to 50-50, really nice. You got inventory, you got buyers. Inventory, buyers. Yeah. Um, I would add a caveat though, though. If you're living in a third floor walk-up slum, yeah, you might leave the area because you can't find a place to live. But I think generally speaking, the housing stock and the rental stock for houses or residences in Clinton County is fairly good. I think you'd have to go, maybe there's a couple pockets here in Clinton County, I haven't been here living here for six years, where the housing is really terrible. My, my daughter lives in a 1,400 square foot apartment. It's a pretty nice apartment, mm -hmm. you know, two large bedrooms and a view of the lake and so on and so forth. And there are other places like that and you can see the rents are going up, but You'd have to really be living in a dump, I think, to want to leave because you can't it, find a house. Yeah, I think it, my mom was just going to wait. It would have to be severe. Yeah, yes, it, yes. but it's it's 
as everything builds though, it's like, that's like the worst fear is that it gets so bad that people are like, I, it could, and, it and that's, could. and that's always, I mean, I'm kind of putting my real, like, you know, real estate hat on and that and looking through that lens. But in the um, meantime, you're laughing all the way to the bank. If I have the seller, <laughs> if I have to have the seller, I got buyers now and I feel, I do, I feel bad for buyers, you know, because yeah. it's, it's just, it's frustrating. And you know, it's, it's tough when people aren't getting homes and you're like, like lost out again on a multiple offer or. I can't afford a multiple offer because I have yeah. a lot of people. I got an FHA loan. I need seller concessions. Good luck. Yeah, nobody's <laughs> in Florida. If they sell a home or even get a listing on a street, they solicit everybody in that street. Mm-hmm. Want to sell your house? Want to sell? It. They're starving for inventory. In North Carolina, homes are going up fifty percent in value in less than two years in the Raleigh Durham area. It's well, you're, start, you're starting to see a lot of like the more established agents, the agents that can get listings, are doing stuff off market. Yep. You're playing matchmaker off market because you yeah. can. You Everybody's can. ignoring MLS. Yeah, you got you got, you got buyers. It's like, and then it becomes even less because less homes are coming on the market because they're all mm-hmm. doing it not not privately. But someone calls me up. I got a lot of buyers. Like, let me try to play matchmaker with a few of the buyers and get something's going to give. And I don't think a one point increase in the mortgage interest rate is going to slow it down either. No, no. I think it's going to be supply and demand. I know. I agree. So, Mark, we're going to switch gears. We talked about the past. Let's go to the present. Mm-hmm. So you uh, you wore the hat many years consultant, real estate, economic development guy. Tell us what you're doing now. I'm unsuccessfully retired. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Which doesn't surprise me. <laughs> you may recall, maybe probably not, but my, my wife has infected me with a love of history. And um, back when we lived here in the North Country, I wrote a couple biographies. I collaborated with Christine on a couple of local history books, Crossing the Line, a book about Smith Reed, the only biography about Smith Reed called The President of Plattsburgh. And after four non-fiction books, local history works. I grew tired of footnotes. And then one day, Christine walked into the living room and announced that one of my ancestors fought in the Civil War. And so uh, I found a diary from a fellow who served in the same regiment. And my first book, War Calls, Love Cries, was born. And, uh, and of course, when you put out a book, you know, you got all your friends and family, they all say nice things. But I'm cynical enough to know that you can't really trust the people you love to give you an honest evaluation of the book. And then I was turned out the book was a finalist in the Eric Hoffer competition. I didn't win gold, silver, or bronze, but I was really close. That's probably one of the most prestigious book awards in the entire country. It's one of the top ten. I said, holy crap, maybe I really am an author. And then I won a gold medal from the Florida Authors and Publishers Association for Historical Fiction. So now I was hooked. The book that you're holding in your hand is the second in a trilogy on love and war. It's called Sister Marguerite and the Captain. And that was born because Alexandra's husband, Eric Ashline, has a, I meant to ask Christine, a fifth or sixth great-grandfather that came from Canada and fought in the American Revolutionary War. His name was Antoine Paulin, and you can read about him. There's very well research when he was about his life. So I decided to write about him. I changed his name to Dauphin, gave him a girlfriend who happened to be a nun, did a lot of other things with his life. Uh, and so the second book was born, and I just published that just a little while ago. In fact, the cover just won an award. We don't know if it's gold, silver, or bronze yet, but it was recognized, and I helped my publisher design the cover. And uh, I'm having a blast. I love writing historical fiction. It satisfies my hunger for history. I get to read literally 40 or 50 history books before I can write one of those things, uh, and all the articles I can find. But at the same time, 
uh, I'm respecting history. I can also make things up as I go along. And so the creativity in me uh, is also satisfied. And I'm having a blast. You don't make money, by the way, becoming an author. My publisher told me in the beginning, three books, five years, maybe if you get lucky, you have a bestseller. But don't count on it. He's right. <laughs> the, so, well, yeah, I want to dissect this. I've never had an author on... I'm trying to think. I don't think anybody's been on that's been an author. And well, I, you can only get better from here. Good okay, luck. So, <laughs> And we, as we say, we set the bar low. It's kind of like Scott. So we had Matt Boyer on first, and we brought Alex and then Mark. So it's, we're doing good. So, um, but if, if so, if I look at this, the book um, historical, I love history. The fact that you gave me one from the Revolutionary War was that was out of all the, um, out of all the wars I learned about in high school and, and elementary and all the way through, the Revolutionary War was the one I learned the most of. For some reason, the U.S. history, like when you took U.S. history. They always seem like they started and they, like the Revolutionary War, I know a lot. The Civil War, you know, Korean War, I mean, the Vietnam World Wars, I don't know as much as I did about the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the actual American Revolution. And yep. so I always have a soft spot for the American Revolution just or war because I have, you know, that's kind of like the Patriot. Well, like, you're a busy man, but if you get to read it, let me know what you think about well, it. Well, no, I, well, I, yes, I'm, I'm going to attempt to definitely read this because my, I will read it at some point. I, hopefully my attempt is sooner than later, meaning within the year, but. <laughs> I won't the, hold my breath. <laughs> yeah, but, but the, um, so, okay, so we have a couple history books and then The Crossing the Line, The President of Plattsburgh, The Boat People of Champlain. That's, you authored or co-authored, those were local mm-hmm. history books. Right. But those were pretty much nonfiction. No, all nonfiction. And there was a fourth one. I'm not sure it's listed there. It was a biography of Father Boucher, who was a Catholic priest over in Albert, Vermont. He ran yeah. the St. Anne Shrine. Okay. I wrote, yeah. the, I wrote his biography yeah, while he was still alive. Yeah. That sold quite a few copies, mostly because of him, not because of the author. Um, so <clears throat> the so what's the process like to write historical fiction? So you, there's there's history. There's fiction it, know, it, it's kind of a blend of both and it, it's a it's a fascinating process i i wrote a few non-fiction books uh and went to border press and announced this point to get them printed up but this world of publishing if you will is completely different and i read voraciously mostly history books as a matter of fact but i read voraciously about how to write and, and publish and market your first book and uh, when I went to one writers group, I met what turned, turned out to be the guy who ran the publishing company that agreed to publish my books. And um, there's so much to learn out there, but it's learnable. I mean, you can go to Dr. Google and find just about anything out. And, uh, but putting the book together, I'm still learning. I've got a lot to learn about how to put together. There, I found out, for example, there are people called pantsers and plotters. Do you know what that means? I didn't know what it means. No. A plotter is someone who sits down and plots out his whole book. A pantser is somebody who kind of does it by the seat of his pants. I'm more of a pantser than a plotter. So I could be in the middle of my chapter. I look up, and she killed him. And I'm looking at my pen like, how did you do that? I didn't expect her to kill him. But he killed, she killed the guy, you know, whatever it is. Or he did this or she did that, whatever it is. It's a lot of fun being a pantser. And so I never, and I go into the living room and I tell Christian, you never guess what Sister Marguerite just did. And she said, why are you surprised you're writing the book, you idiot? And I said, yeah, but I didn't know what's going to happen. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can respect history. You can have a reverence for history, which I do. But at the same time, you can do what you want with your characters and sit there and say, what would I do in a similar situation? Or all of a sudden you're writing and she decides to stab him or he decides to hit her or quit his job or be a traitor or whatever it is. It's a lot of fun. So my first question is, because it's historical fiction, mm-hmm. How much, how much prep, how much research, how much oh. goes into it? Because again, to make something historically, a historical fiction book, you still have to be historically accurate. Yes, you do. 
for me, two novels under my belt, third one about 55,000 words into it right now, I might go through anywhere from 35 to 50 books, and I have to read them. And so American I, Revolution, you read about almost 50 books on oh, American Oh, at least. I, my library is over 50 books in American Revolution. Okay. And when you go through, you just can't read them. You've got to take notes, and you've got to organize the notes so that months from now, if you decide to talk about the Battle of Germantown, you have a list of every book that mentions Germantown with the title of the book and the page number. So you can quick, otherwise you find yourself reading the same 50 books 100,000 times. So you have to kind of catalog it. Uh, and so that, and then there's articles. There's tons of articles, especially nowadays. You can go online and Google something. You get all dissertations, master's dissertations, PhD dissertations are great stuff. Uh, any articles and stuff, websites, uh, whatever it is. And so by the time you finish, you've probably gone through 35 to 50 books, dozens of articles. And then you have maybe index cards or me, legal pads filled with notes. And then you start writing. And at the same time, you might have ideas floating around your head what the, the thrust of the story is going to be like. My next book is about the Battle of Plattsburgh, the War of 1812. And it's about a tomboy named Charlotte, who everybody calls Charlie, and eventually everybody thinks is a boy, not a girl. Mm -hmm. And she ends up on McDonough's, excuse me, McDonough's flagship, the Saratoga, fighting in the Battle of Plattsburgh. She's a powder monkey, which is someone who had to bring canisters of powder from the hold below the deck up above to the cannon, guys running the cannons mm -hmm. and the tillers on top of that very dangerous job. And I, I did, just came to me, I read about powder monkeys, and uh, so another book was born. And uh, that's what I do. Are you, now, when you read, are you hard copy? Because you're taking notes, right? I mean, you're, you're reading the hard copy, you're not reading the Kindle, you're not reading an audio Oh, book. I don't like uh, electronic books. Okay, I'm the same. Too. I like, like, if you gave, the, I mean, I could listen to this, it would probably be very interesting because it's fiction. Right. There's something about flipping the pages and like watching the story. I, I like flipping the corners. I ruined a lot of library books, you know. I yeah, read you're your bender. From, bender, yes, no taker. Yeah, absolutely. And I just never got into Kindle, although I have that on Amazon.com, the electronic version, so you can buy the electronic version, but I like print books. And right now, the market is, says about, 80% of people read books like the hard copy books. Oh, yeah, so I, I'll agree with that. The uh, How many books you have in your library? When you say library, is this like your actual house that you do take, you rent up, them out of the Up here in the North Country, uh, probably every year I'd give away nine or ten boxes of books to the Plattsburgh Library, whoever would take them. Mm -hmm. Probably when we left, I probably had, well, we had our local history collection, which was several hundred volumes. I had on more than 250 books on Abraham Lincoln, which I donated to the uh, Allen, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. There's a big, there'd be a big library. I think it's Allen County Library in Fort Wayne. Second biggest collection of Lincolnia. If you go there and they let you in the vaults, which they probably won't, you'll see a plaque on the wall that says Mark Berry's collection. I donated a lot of stuff to them. And then the rest, I, I donated or sold at auctions or whatever it is. So I had hundreds of books. Now in Florida, my two-bedroom two villa, yeah, I probably don't have more than 200 books. Um, so. Now, can you speed read, I'm assuming? Yes. Okay. So how, how long, like this book is what, probably 300 pages, mm -hmm. roughly? 285, okay, not far off. How fast could you read that book? I would never speed read a fiction book. Okay. Because fiction, you've got to take your time. You miss descriptions, you miss all the details. But a nonfiction book, I can speed read, and I can go through 250 pages probably in an hour. Wow. So I learned that in college. I was on the debate team at college. And you had to go through, go to the library. They didn't have Google back then. You had to go to the library and research the topic. One year was on the control and supply of energy. Another year was on something else. And so you had to read tons and tons of books and magazines. And you learn how to get glean what you want from each article, from each book. And so by the time I left college, I was speed reading, and then it just got worse and worse over the years. And you can comprehend everything fine. 
I don't remember it very long, but I can comprehend it. I can remember it long enough to make a few notes or know that it's in that book. Now I'm getting really smart. I make a lot of notes on it, so I don't have to figure out where it is in the so book. So a lot of it's just a very quick, like almost like a rough draft like thought process. Like, let me just get the information. Yeah. Okay. You could be writing a historical fiction book like that, and I'll give you an example. It happened in this book. Uh, I decided to have the uh, one of the characters shoot out a candle, a royal lamp, I should say. And then it occurred to me, did they have oil lamps back then? You spent an hour figuring that out. Yeah. And yeah. turned out they were very rare, very expensive, very uncommon. So I had them blow out a candle instead in a candle holder. And anything, how do they how do they light a fire back in 1812 or 18, whatever it was? Flint. Yeah, they had flint. They, yeah. had, they had a little flint box with yeah. a little straw in it, a little flint. And so you've got to research just about everything. A guy gets shot in the uh, arm. Are they going to amputate or going to pull the bullet out? Yeah. And if they amputate, how long does it take? What's involved? So in my first Civil War book, it's very gruesome. There are parts about I love. In fact, one of my, my, my canned speeches when I go out and on the public speaking tour is medicine before an, uh, uh, antiseptics, or before yeah. an, antibiotics and before anesthesia. And it's, you got to do a lot of research. And you might spend hours just on one like a sentence paragraph. or like a paragraph. Yes. Yeah. Because if you get it wrong, there's some SOB out there that's going to point it out. In my first book on the well, Civil War. I would think you'd lose credibility too. Well, it doesn't help. But in my first book on the Civil War, I talked about the main character's father and how his favorite picture was a daguerreotype of him and his wife when they got married. And I looked it up. And that year, there were daguerreotypes. But I forgot to figure out that when he got married 40 years earlier, there were no daguerreotypes. It's a special kind of photograph where I ran a okay. tin plate. And, didn't, and the book went, and one of the judges in a book contest said, no, the daguerreotypes didn't exist when Mr. and Mrs. Wells got married. Oops. You know, then you have type errors and grammatical errors, and oh, my God, it takes forever to edit a book. But my publisher says I'm unique because he said, you're one of the few authors I've ever met that knows, how, knows marketing. And I am. I'm unusual. I'm a businessman turned author. There's a lot of authors out there trying to become businessmen, and they're not. They have the art, but not the... Yeah. They write a great book, but nobody knows. Did you know there's about a million books a year that are printed here in the United States? That's crazy. Yeah, so you I mean, think, you, you're short of houses? I'm not short of books. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you, when you look at, like, you go to a library and just see all the books, and and if you even just take business, how many business books are out there when all of a sudden, like, this book's coming out, this person wrote a book, this thing, like, and it's kind of the point where it's like, wow, like, it seems like everybody has a book. And, um, and, and the thing with books that, Fiction books, I don't think fiction books stand the test of time. A lot of business books, why well, some of the some of the stuff facts, rings yeah. true. A lot of them, it could you know, that could be relevant for a couple of years. Yeah, especially nowadays, a couple of years. You get the old books like you know, they can grow rich. You can that's still relevant to today's Dale Carnegie's Dale Carnegie influence. books exactly. Uh, you know, Covey books like that. Yeah. The, all these books from the you know whenever they wrote them, you know, 70s, 80s, yeah. before. But Stocks for Dummies doesn't last very long. No, it may last for six months, you know, yeah, before right. it's, it's, it's dated. But um, so what's the process of, actually, before we get to the process of a book, where do you come up with the ideas? You say you're a pantser. It kind of sees your pants, but when do you start formulating? Um, number one is take this book. So Sister Marguerite and the Captain. It's based on the Revolutionary War. What makes you think Revolutionary War is going to be my overall theme? Well, it starts with the ancestor, as it turned out, Eric Ashline's ancestor, Antoine Poulin, reading all about him. And he was a Canadian recruited by a guy named Moses Hazen to fight in the Revolutionary War. 
And because George Washington was very short of troops, so believe it or not, there was a lot of recruitment going up in southern Quebec, right on the border. And they would pay them a pretty healthy dime if they come across the border and fight down here. So that's how it started. And then the, there's a creative side to me. Probably my wife calls it the romantic side. I just can't have a soldier come down here and shoot his gun. I got to fall in love. Mm -hmm. Well, then I started thinking, well, how did he get here to begin with? Well, he had to come over here on a ship. Okay, back in the 1700s. That's another story, just the ship ride. And so what's he going to do in the ship besides, you know, uh, suffer because it wasn't fun going to ship? Well, I found out when ships came from France to New France or Quebec City, they had a lot of missionaries. So I decided to have my soldier fall in love with a nun. That would be interesting, right? Probably because I grew up with nuns. for a little the taboo. First, yeah. yeah, a little taboo. Yeah. And uh, Catholic nonetheless. I'm getting back at those nuns that didn't like me there in high school. In grade school, and so it just kind of builds builds on on, on things, and you keep going and going. And sometimes, because you're a pantser, it just takes twists and turns that you don't you truly don't expect. But I'm I'm a, I'm an oddball writer because I'll say I'm, I write my whole book on a legal pad, and then believe it or not, I dictate it to my iPad, do a little bit more cleaning up and editing, and then I mail it to my laptop, and then it sits there, and I won't look at it for at least a month. And then I just keep adding chapters. And like I said, my next book on the Battle of Pottsburg is 55,000 words. I've probably got about another 25,000 to go when the, when the Battle of Pottsburg finally comes to an end. And uh, I'll leave it alone for another couple months. I'll go back and read it and say, this sucks. Fix it all Is that just again. to kind of let things flush out and then come back with kind of a yeah, clear eye? You, you, you need You're an objective eye, which you don't have after you've written the book. So you've got to get, get away from it. Give it to some what I call beta readers. I have four or five of them. They read your book and they're honest enough to tell you if it stinks or not. Or there's mistakes in it or whatever it happens to be. I've had a couple of really good beta readers over the course of my short career as an author. But um, then I go back and clean it all up and I give it to my publisher. Then his editor goes on it. He goes at it and everybody takes a look at it and then decide whether or not they're going to publish it. And I have what's called a hybrid publisher. There are vanity presses out there. Well, they'll, everybody comes in the door is welcome. They'll charge you for everything. And then you have the Random Houses of New York City. Mm -hmm. And you could die before they knock on your door and offer to Penguin, Random House. Yeah. yeah. They, they, you know, everybody dreams that, no, not going to happen. Then you got hybrid publishers, which are reputable. They have guidelines. They'll charge you for professional services, like getting your book on Amazon. I can't do that. For a cover design, I can't do that. For editing, I shouldn't do that. But uh, they're discerning. They're not going to take just any Tom, Dick, and Harry that walks in the, in the store, but you will pay them. But there are still authors. I see them all the time on my Facebook websites for authors. Never, 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 never pay money to have your book published. Well, unless you're J.K. Rowling, forget it. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So either you satisfy your urge to be a published author and you get practical about it, uh, or you're never published. And, of course, I'm lucky because I'm retired. I already made my money. But I've met a lot of authors that, like, they have no marketing plan. You look at them like deer caught in the headlights. They couldn't sell their way to a white paper bag. I feel really bad for them. They've yeah. written a lot, a book, worked hard on it, got it all put together, published it themselves. And like I said, a million books a year. It's like going down to Northway, and every year they add a million more billboards. Good luck getting your book noticed. Um, so, so the, the 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 but the plot line when you start doing, like you start just throwing stuff in. But like, where does the I, I mean when you take the like Revolutionary War. You start reading books. You kind of like Revolutionary War is a big time period. Civil War, big time period. Battle of Plattsburgh, it's cool. It's a part of a history of our area. Um, do you take that and then start, okay, now we know um, War and Love, Love and War. Those are the, those are my kind of, my, my, my themes of the books. Mm -hmm. And then from there, okay, now 
what do I want to do? I want to have a, a captain come up. Then he falls on, you know, then we have, let's have a nun because you're starting to throw some like twists in. But like, where does the, how, how does it, like my, uh, again, I've never wrote a book. I've written some papers, you know, back in the day, like for school mm-hmm. and stuff. But like me, I'd say main theme, couple characters, what's a general plot? And then it's a very loose storyline. Well, if I didn't write historical fiction, I wouldn't have the answer. I do not know how people write a book that's 100% fiction. Nothing about history, but when you write historical fiction, and perhaps that's what's why I can do it because I can cheat. You're guided by the actual history, so you, your guy has to come from France to New France at a certain year on a certain ship, and then he has to get recruited by a certain guy and go into a certain regiment, and that regiment goes to a certain place and has a certain battle with a certain enemy, and so my next chapter is always the next fact of history, and then I add to it by the stuff around them, a love interest, maybe an injury, uh, you know, maybe a good friend that gets injured, maybe a suicide or whatever it happens to be. But I never have, I hear so often about writers have writer's block. I've never had writer's block because I just go to the next event in history and that tells me, and I don't know where it's going to end up. Uh, this book right here ended before the Revolutionary War ended, Okay. The Battle of Plattsburgh book will end at the Battle of Plattsburgh. I know that ahead of time. But when you're writing historical fiction, that's your guideline. And then you simply introduce the fictional elements along the way. How do you write something that's 100% fiction? I have the foggiest idea, and you'll never see me do that. So, like in this case, the captain. So, the, and the name of the captain? Uh, Antoine Dauphin in the book. But the real character on which it's based was a private named Antoine Poulain. Okay, so Antoine Dauphin. Dauphin? Dauphin. Dauphin. Like French Dauphin. Dauphin. D-A-U-P-H-I-N. So the, the historical fiction from him is maybe we're going to do a battle. He, you know, Maybe then he gets up in the morning, he has to go to the battle, and then you you put in layers of historical, but you put in the fiction aspect. Like, hey, he decided to go you know, check on the, uh, the horse, and then he decided to go talk to his sister Marguerite. But you're putting – that's where it just kind of becomes like a fun, like, let's just eh, – Let's you know. Let's make it a rainy day. Let's do this, and or foreshadowing, like, hey, rainy day might mean like conflict. Yeah. Coming. Well, she's a nun, and one of the things that nuns did back in New France or Quebec City was they were nurses. Mm-hmm. They were there when the doctor amputated a wounded soldier, so it was only natural to have her fulfill that role even when she left the convent. And so she ended up becoming a nurse first for the British and then for the Americans, and uh, so it just kind of flows. And for me, that part is the easy part. The hard part is the details and the color. Uh, I find it almost tedious, but it's necessary that when you describe a scene that it be accurate, that you describe clothing that's going to be accurate, what they eat has to be accurate. Everything is history, and there's tons of history buffs out there, and tons of people are right in those periods of time. And so if you make a mistake, there's also one little SOB that's going to point it out to you. Yeah. And I hate that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems, it seems, again, it, rewarding but definitely tedious because it's like man so many details do you find that you lose your train of thought or you're like like man i'm like i'm like layers deep in this book now to try to find details and to make a story that it just like you forget about stuff or you're like well um or are you you, can you kind of write it all in, in one you will forget stuff so what i do is as i after i do maybe four or five thousand words i have a separate legal pad where i summarize what i've written by page Okay, so it says Nathan did this or so-and-so did this, Sister Marguerite did this. And so it's a, a one or th- 
two or three or four line summary of what I've written over five. So then when I said, okay, what happened? I could go back in my legal pad and remember what happened. Because you won't remember. When you write 75 or 80,000 words oh, yeah. and you do it over a period of 12 to 15 months, you will not remember everything you wrote. Sometimes I forget the name of a character. Okay. How, how, how big is this book? Wordwise, that one there is about seventy-five thousand words, I think. Okay, so they're all roughly about three hundred pages. Yeah, I've, I've, some people write six hundred page books. I and my wife tells me that's ridiculous. That's when they take four pages to describe the sunny day or the scenery out in the so woods. So I was reading. Um, I haven't finished it. I started reading during COVID, but East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a six hundred page book, and you enjoying it. Well, I'm two, I'm about 150 to 200 pages. And I almost just want to watch the movie because I'm like, it's not a bad book, but it's just slow, man. It's like, whoa. Yeah. You just read it and it's like he's describing every blade of grass. And I'm like, can't you just say it was a sunny day in <laughs> Salinas, California? And like on to the next thing. <laughs> well, my, my favorite book of all time is Great Gatsby. It's a, it's uh-huh. under 200 pages. Yeah. And it's like it everything moves. that F. Scott Fitzgerald, it moves. It's like plot, 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 plot. You read, small detail, but plot, plot, plot. Let's go. You read the way I write. Uh, my books have to move. Yeah. I mean, if, if I get a paragraph description, that's a lot of description for me. I believe, and not all authors believe this, but un- unless your description uh, is, is either moving the story forward or riveting, edit it, mm-hmm. delete it, okay? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time telling you what she wore on her wedding day, okay? It's going to be just the facts, ma'am, yeah. and move it along. And so not surprisingly, my reviewers, my critics have told me they, they can't put the book down. They read it in one day. And the reason is there isn't that long, tedious, time-consuming narrative. There's always something happening. And you can't wait to turn the next page to see if she killed him or not or if she got attacked or whatever it happens to be. So if and when you read that book, I, I promise you, you'll see no long descriptions. In is, is it kind of like a, I would say a thriller, but it's kind of a seat of your, like you want to, like you've ended this chapter, you want to start the next chapter. Oh, there's like, everything. There's there's a little bit of sex in there, a whole lot of violence. Uh, there's uh, a lot of history, if you like history at, at all. Yeah, it's it. all the history is accurate as far as I know. Nobody has corrected me on it yet. Uh, my next book, the one after the 1812 book, is about the uh, Spanish-American War, but it's going to be different. Oh, it's, so you already have another one? Like, oh, I've, the- I already got that library. i got about 29 books in that library. Wow. Already. Okay. I haven't started reading them yet. But it'll be about, remember the battleship Bain exploded in the harbor in, in Cuba? I don't. Well, that's, See, that's what I'm saying. My, my memory yeah. is to get far, closer. Well, to this one won't be Love and War. It's not going to be part of my trilogy. That the, My next book ends the trilogy. This one, I think, is going to be more of a thriller uh, mystery type thing. I haven't cool. decided where it's going to go. But again, I'll be guided by history. I'll just fill in the gaps with my own creativity. Can I can I read these three books um, out of succession or out of sequence? Any way you want, because they're not related. There's no characters okay. in the first book that are in the third or the second. Okay, I've, so I've, they're all kind of one-off books with a, with a trilogy I'm, theme. I'm not smart enough to write that kind of a trilogy where the characters continue for three books. Well, that's what I was going to ask because you take you already mentioned like uh, J.K. Rowling. Did you read the Harry Potter books? Never. Okay, so I read those as a kid. They can be. Did you like them? Yeah, I loved them. And uh, I know some people don't like them. I'm like, if you actually read the books, there's fantasy. I'm not as much of a fantasy guy. I'd rather have like historical things or or real real facts. But when you look at, she wrote seven books. The shortest book might have been 300 pages. And there's a lot of descriptions in, but it's good description. Yeah, and successfully got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I would even say the description. She wasn't a very descriptive person. She was. She kept the book moving. She kept it moving. And if you take seven books, with some of them being five, six hundred pages, but then you get to the fifth book, and the sixth book, and the seventh book, and they make reference to some small detail in the second book, and then I'm like, you've long forgotten it. But she brings it back to the fold, and like, oh my god, she just tied up a loose end from four books ago. Mm-hmm. And in my head, it's like, 
I mean, I'll never probably never meet the lady, but is did she have all seven books written when the first book came out in like ninety seven? That's why she's a billionaire. She's a great yeah. talent, and it's just it's it's incredible because I mean, yeah. the books I think she wrote them from like ninety six, ninety seven up until. Yeah. Whatever I, I was probably around college or just getting out of high school when they finished. I mean, she probably yeah. did it well, over my school career. And I remember reading the last book, and the last book made reference to like a small detail in the first Amazing. book, and they came back and joined yeah. this, and that's how they connected. I'm like, how did she have the foresight for that? Yeah. Well, the not so deep dark secret in the publishing industry is that these days you've got to write at least three books, and a lot of people do trilogies, and a lot of people try to write trilogies with the same characters. Uh, I didn't. I said, I'm not smart enough to do that, but I will write a trilogy. The theme will be love and war. They'll all be about love and war. I don't know why I picked that. Maybe because I'm a romantic historian, I guess, or whatever it is. And they're easier to write. Uh, but people are writing trilogies where the characters continue from one book to the next. I would find that extraordinarily challenging. It requires just not just pantsing, but a lot of plotting, mm -hmm. figuring things out, because you can make mistakes going from book two to book three. Good luck with that. All I can think of is, you know, you see like those... Um, detective shows or murder mysteries yeah. where you have like the spider web connecting all the people like all I can think of is people doing the plots like this person's like the, almost like a, a family tree like this person related to this person and, and oh they have software that does that for authors it's like oh my gosh I yeah. mean just trying to connect all those things and keep your mind straight into that, details that sounds like work to me I don't yeah. want to work yeah. I already retired. did that for you're 30 retired. years you're yeah. retired I get up every morning honest to God Gillen and I either write mm -hmm. or I can research or I can market and at various days, I love any of the three. And so literally, I'm happy to jump out of bed and go to my desk and do one of those three things. And I've had good luck with it. I've had some recognition. Third book's coming out hopefully in the fall, later on this year. My publisher loves me. He set up my website for me, which I couldn't do myself. He had another company that does websites. And uh, I think uh, this year, because of COVID, is back. But I'll probably do at least two dozen, maybe three dozen speaking engagements. I've got a big mouth, as you can tell. So I'm going to the Daughters of American Revolution, the Sons of American Revolution, the War of 1812 site. And guess where all these people go that had ancestors in the War of 1812 and Civil War? They're all going to move to Florida. So there are these chapters all over the place, and they're dying for programs, along with Kiwanis and Rotary and Lions Club and so on and so forth. So that's who I speak to. And they must eat this up, because, I mean, if someone's in a history... It. Yeah, hunt, they love, history I sell book. a few books sometimes. I never know. I went to the Haines City Library, which is not too far from Atlanta Airport. I thought, I'm going to get a big crowd. Two people in the audience. Turned out one was the president of the Friends of the Library, and the other one was a reporter. So I hit the gold mine. Then I go to a place, you know where Okeechobee, Florida is? No. It's kind of an out of way location in Florida. I won't make any jokes. Anyway, Okeechobee Library says, Come and speak to us. I'm like, okay. I walk in the library, there's 56 people in there waiting to talk to me. I donated library books to the library. I didn't have enough books for everybody. I had to get special order books. I mean, you know, give them when I got home, mail them the books. And our questions and answers, and it was a lot of fun. Christine always comes with me. She drives for me because I don't drive. And uh, so you never know what's going to happen, but I've combined in my marketing, I've combined one of my favorite things, which is public speaking. I've done that since my college days, and uh, plus the writing. So I'm having a blast. I'm just not making a lot of money. I'm going to be a realtor when I grow up. When I that's grow good. Up. I was going to say, you, I think you can make it. You can make it, kid. Yeah. Um, you, you'd hold my license? That's uh, well, well, yeah. <laughs> One generation later, we'll still do it. Yeah, Strongly you holding your license. You're but old the, and young. The, uh, no, I mean, I, I think um, one of my favorite books that I, I've read all of them except when I... Dan Brown books. Have you read Dan Brown I've books? I've heard of him. I've not read him. So like Da Vinci Code, Angel and Demons. Yeah. It's all historical. I mean, you would love it, but it's historical fiction. I would... I would encourage you to read them before doing your next book. And I mean, you have your own system, but mm -hmm. his is historical thrillers. And 
Um, and a lot of them, like the Da Vinci Code, was. Did you ever watch the, the movie or the, read the book on that? Uh, da Vinci Code? No, it was really either. big when it first. I came watched out. very little TV. Okay, so with Da Vinci Code, uh, probably came out in the mid early 2000, 2005, 2006. It had to do something with the popes and an ancient code or something. Yes, like that. what what he did was he took that every book that he wrote. Um, there's a handful of books. I've read almost all of his books. Um, Infernal's the last one I, I'm like half. I'm about, he's a very popular author. I know yeah, that. a quarter of the way through. He's from New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, so Da Vinci Code was like his breakout book. And you would call that historical adventure? I would call it historical adventure, historical thriller. I mean, Historical it's, thriller. Maybe my Remember the Main book will be a historical thriller. Yeah, and I, but it's details. It's facts. And, and the thing is he adds a lot of conspiracy to it. But it's conspiracy in the sense of he's able to take all these like theories and maybe he's researched But there's that much history in it and that oh much gosh, historically yeah. accurate and stuff? And he came out with, oh my gosh, yeah. And he came out with, um, I have a, I think two or three of his books that they then came out with picture versions. Right. Not picture book, but when he's describing a painting or describing mm-hmm. a building, they have a picture of the building. So as you're reading through it, you're like, okay. And he like now they're running around Rome and he's talking about these different um, plazas and all these, you know, different historical, you know, yeah. the Vatican and you're connecting the dots. Like the whole the whole premise of the Da Vinci Code was that Jesus had a bloodline. That mm. Jesus actually did have did have a child and, oh, and, and wow. there's actually a bloodline and Jesus, Jesus, and I won't go too much into detail. People haven't read it, but he basically, it's Jesus still has living relatives to this day. And he that, probably didn't sell too many copies at the Vatican. Maybe not, but his next book, <laughs> Angels and Demons, which I, it's not in my bookshelf. I have a couple other ones. Angels and Demons took place at the Vatican. Yeah, and it had to do with the idea of science versus religion. Yeah, and so a lot of the a lot of the stuff he talks about. Um, People that are very passionate one way or the other probably get their feathers all ruffled. But for the you know the layman reading it, it's, well, you're it's, reading mostly for entertainment, not it's for religious education. Exactly. I, you know, I have to say I'm torn because on the one hand I hear author after author after author, expert after expert after, after, after expert talking. If you're going to write historical fiction, you got to read it, read lots of it, read constantly. Then I read something one day that said if you read what everybody else reads, you're going to write the way everybody yep. else writes. And so I'm kind of torn, and of course I love history, and so I'm reading history. I've read my first nonfiction book, or excuse me, fiction book, probably a month ago, and that was my first fiction book in at least two and a half decades. That's that. I shouldn't really? confess it out loud. Because well, was, this a, was this a historical fiction, or was this just fiction? You know what it was? It was about a, what I would call a female Sherlock Holmes in her late teens, early 20s, going to Oxford. And she teams up with a real Sherlock Holmes who was semi-retired in the Welsh countryside. Fascinating boy. I loved her writing style. My daughter had it laying on the floor in an apartment. I picked it up, read the first page, I got hooked. And so I'm wondering, geez, there's probably a whole world out there that I'm too stupid or stubborn to explore. I just like the writing style as much as I like the story. She hated the book. She said oh, it was too detailed, all that deductive reasoning, clues and stuff like that. But I, so I'm thinking, geez, maybe I should lean more toward writing. But I don't want to write like everybody else writes. I want to write my own style. So like that fiction book, how long did that fiction book take you to read? Well, I read it in a day and a half. Okay, so I mean, you spend a little bit more That's time. That's a long time for me to play with a book. But you can still move through it. And oh, I move through it, yeah. I, I think people that speed read, it's like, it's like a natural superpower. I say natural, but I mean like you could do it. Because I just always find it fascinating. I've never been able to comprehend and read fast. Yeah. But I would love to because I, 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 I have a ton of books on my bookshelf. I've read, uh, I've probably read a third of them. But there's so many that I'm like, I would love to read it. It takes a lot of practice. So it's yeah. taken me 40 years, you know, started when yeah, I was in college. It's just like me to sit down. I love reading between work, between three kids, between, you know, yeah. it's like, 
I have enough to like. There's very few books where I really want to spend a lot of time. Winston Churchill, I think one of the greatest writers in the history of the world. I love anything he's written. I mean, he's just so eloquent. Um, I love anything about Lincoln. And I'll take my time reading those because I love Lincoln. He's my hero, along with Winston Churchill, not coincidentally. But uh, like a modern, I used to have a lot of modern day so-called political books from the Bushes and Cheney and everybody else. And those I would speed read, skip through the crap. Like decision points and that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Decision points was a good book. Charles Crownhammer, you ever read his, his, no. his last book of something good time? I forget what it's called. It's not the, no memory. I take a lot of notes. And... Uh, but those kind of books, if they're well written, I'll read every word. I, I, words to me are like music yeah. if they're written well. And I try to write that way. I don't come even close. But a good writer, I'll take my time. I'll soak it up and take my time and take days to go through the book. Maybe even read it again. But a, a regular history book, yeah, I can speed through it. Just, you know, dates, times, places, events, and little known facts. So what, what's, uh, how long do, is it, does it take you to write a book? Start, well, it, start, let's go start to finish, like not even in your brain. So it's in my brain. A year and a half at a minimum. At a minute. Okay. Yeah. At a minimum. Uh, this one is going really quick because it's my third one. I'm getting better at it. I'm more efficient, more effective, more productive. And I'm even more retired than I was when I first went to Florida. I no longer volunteer with the score people. Just was taking too much time. I was having too much fun with the books. Mm-hmm. So I said goodbye to them. Although I'm helping out a nonprofit down there and it's taken quite a bit of my time, but uh, yeah, you can spend at least a year and a half. Some people rattle off a couple of books a year, but they're under deadline getting a small fortune. And from what my wife tells me, a lot of those books are the same thing over and over again. Yeah. They just change the cast and the characters and the scenes. If you, um, so what's a normal, um, that year and a half, what's a normal year and a half look like from start to finish? Well, I'm and going, then, and then sorry, and then the next thing is, what's it? What's a normal day or week that of you as an author? Okay, well, there's some overlap. First of all, like right now, even though I'm, like I said, fifty-five thousand words into my next book on the Battle of Pottsburg, I'm marketing that one and marketing the previous one. I'm also collecting books for the next two books: the Spanish-American War and World War One. I. I already know I'm going to write okay. years from now, and then and. And that takes time, too, finding the right book. Like, I like journals. I like diaries because they're personal, they're gritty. Sometimes they're very and they're autobiographical, graphic. usually. They're auto- and they're true. Yeah. And yeah. nobody can question that you get it from a, from a journal. Uh, but you would start with getting your collection together. And then for me, it's going through the entire collection, making notes. And you, you'll have an idea about how you're going to write your book and what's going to be in your book. But when you start reading, you learn things like the life on a ship coming from France to New France. You just pick up things, little tidbits, and you may asterisk those on the legal pad so you make sure they're in the book. You know, How long do you think it takes to do an amputation in the Civil War? An amputation? Yeah, they are. I mean, I would hope quick, quick and as painless as possible. Because there's I, no anesthesia. But I'm, I'm less sure than a minute. They had a hacksaw. They had a hacksaw. Well, I was thinking a hacksaw, but I'm like, geez, like I'm yeah, thinking it like a, it was a carpenter, so it takes less than a minute. And oh, uh, one of the things I make, I do speeches all over, and one of the things I do is I show, I have Christine go around a picture of what looks like a brush, and nobody can guess what it's for, and what it is is a bone brush because the surgeon was working so quick to saw your arm off that it was dust flying everywhere. And the bone brush was to brush the bone so he could Jeez. see exactly where he was cutting. Yeah, A little gruesome, and I try to do it after lunch, not before lunch. <laughs> but uh, every time I read a book, uh, my, right now, the, this one here, it's seven facts about the revolutionary war that will amaze you. The, the previous one was seven facts about the civil war that will amaze you. And, and I don't, when I go to these speaking engagements, I don't try to sell my books. I, instead, I talk what I learned writing the book. 
And I've also got a, a speech on how to write a book and publish a book and market a book. I got a speech about medicine before antibiotics and anesthesia. And I go all over the place. That's the fun part. And then what happens is you do, do that little talk and uh, then people say, well, I want a book, I want a book. Even yeah. kids, I mean, a couple of teenagers yeah. bought a book. Now to answer your second question, what my day is like, is uh, if Christine and I can't find an estate sale to go to, we usually like go to estate. Estate sales are a lot of fun. You look for things that you don't need, yeah. and you spend a lot of money on them, yeah. but we do anyway. And uh, go to the gym first, and then I get to my little writing desk, and I'm getting personnel. I read my Bible, because I don't really go to church anymore. I get tired of my church, so I read my Bible every day. And I got a little commentary, and I learned from that. Uh, Mondays, pay the bills. They don't make any bills these days. And then it's marketing, research, or writing. And it depends what I'm in the mood for. And usually I'll try to do marketing at least once a week. Every day I try to do something that's marketing. But at least once a week, a big one, like an email. Like I use Constant Contact. I got 550 names on that email list. And I've accumulated those things at three, four, six, and ten at a time. These are people that more than likely heard me speak or were good personal friends of mine. So I get to send out an email blast. There are Facebook sites that I'm on all the time. So I do either marketing. If I'm writing, I kind of have to be in the mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like playing like my... The headspace? Yeah, well, I've got space in that front room of our villa. And but I like to play my guitar, but only when I'm in the mood. And then, but if you get in the mood, I'll write for hours. In fact, my biggest problem in life is I snack at night. If I start writing at 6 o'clock, I'll write till 1 in the morning. I won't even have a bite to eat. I can lose weight writing. I should do it more often, obviously. Look at me. And then there's uh, researching. Researching is fun, but once you go through your library for that particular book, you've got everything cataloged, and so all you're doing for researching is going through the legal pad and say, I know there was an entry here about the Battle of Brandywine. Where is it? You find it, pull the book off the Because you know in the, in the book, that's the next historical thing. Let's just take all the notes, make yeah. that chapter, yeah. story. Yeah. yeah, so the book I'm writing now, uh, next thing I'm going into uh, Pring's Raid down Lake Champlain, which we're looking at now. I think it was in March of 1814, British uh, uh, fellow on a ship and came down here and burnt some warehouses and raised a lot of hell before the Battle of Plattsburgh, which was in September of 1840. So I'll go back and do my notes and I'll read everything I can about Pring's Raid, Daniel Pring's Raid on Lake Champlain in March of 1814. And then I'll write about it. But I'll insert my characters into it, so on and so forth. And uh, that's what I do. So I write, research, or, or market, and I'm having a blast. I haven't had so much fun my entire life. And there's if, when you when you write these, are you under a deadline, or is this more of like when I'm no. done? I'm done. When you work with a hybrid publishers, whenever you show up with the book, mm-hmm. uh, I try to give them heads up. Say, look, I think I got another one coming out in, in uh, late fall, and he's happy to get them because they're 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 good sellers. They, they win awards, mm-hmm. and uh, makes him look good as a publisher. Yeah. But no, I, I could never write under a deadline. If, if Random House knocked at my door tomorrow and said, "We want your next book, and it's got to be out by September first of next year," I would go crazy. Yeah. Well, that's worried. what I was going to say. It kind of takes the fun away from it because you can just have fun. It's like when it's... Then it starts to be work. It, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, you're retired. So this is... But this is one where, if you know, you feel it when it's right kind of deal where I think if you go through and... Um, like how many drafts of this book do you <laughs> think that you... that you, Or I mean, and not minor switches, but like how different is this from the first copy and how many like... Well, I'll tell you what I do and you can figure it. I'm not sure what the answer is. I write it on a legal pad, and I'm scratching things off, so I'm throwing papers out, starting all over again, whatever it is. Then I get to the point where I'm ready to dictate to my iPad. As I'm dictating it, I'm changing it. Let's switch a word here, do this here, whatever it is. 
Now it goes from my iPad to my laptop. It's a mess. There's typos, there's punctuation marks. I clean it up quite a bit when I'm on my laptop. Even then I start changing sentences, so on and so forth. Once in a great while I go back. Big sin, never go back. Write it, we can edit it later. Because if you keep editing, I did this on the first book, it took me a lot longer in the first book. If you keep going back, you'll always make changes and you never move forward. Once you've got most of the story down, walk away. And then uh, you get the book finished, you let it sit there and just marinate for uh, maybe a month or two or three months. And then you go back and you say, oh God, this is terrible. Fix it up. Oh God, this is good. You know, And, you, and so you, you do a lot of changes. Uh, and then you go through it again before you give it to your publisher because God forbid your publisher doesn't like it or your, the publisher's editor says it sucks or whatever it happens to be. Uh, then you start giving it to people. I start with my wife, my most honest and most severe critic. So this is probably version, I'm going to call this, like, based on that storyline, probably version three. At least. Okay. Yeah, because you don't realize the sum total of all your edits. And then, then after my wife gets it, maybe my mom, who was a voracious reader, but now she had iPod, so doesn't read very much. Uh, but my mom, my sister, also a voracious reader. I got a couple of beta readers, like uh, my former chorus teacher, Helen Coe. Maybe you remember her. I don't, but that's... Well, she taught me singing, and she read that book, and she was so helpful. I could have kissed her on both cheeks, and she's in her 90s. Really? And, and it turned out I was writing about her hometown. She lived in the Brandywine, Germantown area, so she helped me make corrections about the Indians and so on and so forth. Uh, and then after you've done all that, then you say, okay, it's time to go to the publisher. And you send it to the publisher, and then you sit there and you bite your nails, and you wonder what he's going to say. And a lot of times, he read one. I don't think he read this, this one. But his editor comes back, oh, it's a great book. Couldn't put it down, you know. And you can tell kind of it's going to go. But I would have thought this one was going to rack up some rewards, uh, awards. I haven't done it yet, so I don't know. Let's see. So when it, when it goes to the publisher, what's that process like with the publisher? Is it one person reading it, so it's very subjective? Or is it a, do they have like a whole team? My like publisher is more of a boutique publisher, so I think he's got a couple of editors. It's, to me, it's like a black box. They come out, and he said, we're still working on it, and you know, a couple questions here and there. And then the next thing you know, you get, a, uh, you get it back electronically. And, and everything's – I'm sorry, go ahead. With edits? Oh, yeah. Okay. And like the first book, they edited all the uh, ends of the chapters, and I didn't like it. I took them all back out. This, this book here, they made some really nice changes to it. And also, I don't want to get technical, but when you're writing, I write in what's called third-person omniscient. This is, is the author sees everybody, knows what's in their head, so on and so forth. And so you have to make sure you don't have what they call talking heads, where one minute I'm in your head and next minute I'm in your girlfriend's head. You have to let the people know with a new paragraph or maybe a fancy decoration in the middle of the page or a new chapter that we switch from Galen's head to his girlfriend's head. And now we're thinking and talking like her. And so they got to insert all those little things. It gets kind of technical and complicated. But in the end, uh, you find yourself reading your own book at least a dozen times. And by then you hate it. <laughs> so, well, if, if they give you an edit and say this, you should change the last paragraph or the last few sentences, do you automatically say, yep, in? Or do you part? Do you sit there and say, you know what, it's still my book. And I'm like, no, I disagree with you. You can get away with that with a hybrid publisher. You can tell a hybrid publisher to go pound salt. Yeah. You didn't like his changes or his editor's changes, whatever it is. You listen to him 
and but you in the end you make your own decision. If you're with Random House, they take complete control. They can rename your characters. They can kill your characters. Wow. They can rename your book. They can shorten it. They can knock out. And you don't have anything to say about it because you signed a contract and you took this paltry advance. I mean, you know, Andrew Cuomo gets a $4 million advance. Mark Berry doesn't. Okay. And so when you get to a hybrid post, you have much more control, and by the way, a much higher royalty than if you did a deal with Random House. And I'm, I, I never responded well to supervision. I will not ever go. If Random House knocked on my door tomorrow, I'd kick him out. I think that, well, I think it'd be very similar because, like, it's, it's kind of like people that put out independent music versus putting out with a record label. Record exactly. label takes royalties, they, have, they tell you what to do. And you always talk, I was actually listening to, uh, do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Never. Okay. So, Sorry. No, no, I'll listen fine. to this one. No, it's fine. It's fine. So I, um, well, uh, Joe Rogan, do you, have you heard about yes. him? Okay. Yeah. So Joe Rogan's got one of the, uh, probably the most popular podcasts Very in the popular. World. He's a conservative too, isn't he? Uh, he's. Political he, he claims he's libertarian. Of, yeah, I, libertarian. I, 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 would, I would say if he, if he's, he's very much like me. I find that I'm a very moderate kind of person. There's things I'm right. There's things I'm left. And it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of a hybrid of. of the, all, the older I get, the more libertarian I get. Yeah, just there's a lot of there's a lot of different um, poli- from a political not to get political, but like there's a lot of different. Uh, I've never really found any candidates that are just like check all the boxes. So he's got well. more listeners than you do on your podcast. A, a couple more. So mm. It's close though. I'm just you disappointed. might actually. I, 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 again, I thought Matt Boyer would do this, but he, he, he let me down. So I'm gonna you gotta bring in the big guns. Here. You're desperate. So, <laughs> so we. Uh, but um, so I was listening to him, and he, he had a he had a couple. This was a couple weeks ago. He had the lead singer of the Counting Crows. I don't know if you remember the band. Yes. Okay, so Adam. Uh, My sons love them. Duritz, yeah. And I, I mean, I listened to them growing up, and um, I didn't know much about them. I just they were a band mm-hmm. that played, and then you heard him talk for three hours, because you know, and they same thing. It's just they off the cuff, and he has nothing. I mean, Joe just sits there and talks, and yeah. he does research, but he just like they just let it go. And he was talking about it because we'd always had a record label, and he goes, and then they started taking money, and started doing this and that, and now he. Um, they started doing the last few independently, and now he runs this big independent um, festival each year that's free. Mm-hmm. He brings in he brings in people um, independent, but people. he's in control. Hundred percent. He brings in these independent um, artists that that record music, puts them out, gives them a platform, tries to push them, gives out free merch to people, puts them on for free. Um, a lot of it is. He said that he just wants to get back, but he wants to give these people voices that typically record labels because they control you. And right. nowadays with technology, I like. How can I run a podcast? You know what I mean? It's, it's very simple. And one thing like Joe Rogan talks about is he can do whatever he wants. And he, Spotify paid him $100 million to put all of his stuff exclusively in, on um, Spotify. Wow. So wow. you can no longer get an Apple podcast. He still has full control over everything. That was his thing. He goes, I, sure, I'll mm-hmm. do it, but I have full control. It's me. And he even talks about it. It's him, a producer that like I'm kind of doing everything, low budget, but it's him and he has a producer that sits in studio. So there's always about, th- well, there's three people, him, or Joe, guest, uh, producer. And I think he has a guy that does like booking that mm-hmm. like he just says, hey, can you reach out to Yeah, that's people? almost a full-time job. Yeah, just so. can you reach out, get him on the show? Because I mean, six, if you get asked to go on it, I mean, you're, you're somebody or some mm-hmm. reason that you're on the show. And uh, but he's talking about the record producers and being independent. So that's why I recognize the book. And we say you can't work for somebody. We have an independent real estate company. You have an independent real estate or independent, you know, commercial I real do. estate I'm company. I do. MLB Publishing. Yeah, and if you look at it, it's like I, I tell to a lot of people: if you work for a franchise, you're kind of like a bobsled. You can turn, but it's a slow turn like this. Well, let me ask you a question. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. But your father 
was taught me things about how to quantify the effectiveness of an advertisement. I mean, he had numbers and codes. He knew all about it. He was perfect. He was really good at it. Uh, and he knew where his advertising paid off and where it didn't pay off. Have you, can you do something like that with a podcast? I mean, do you know how much yeah. new business that's bought you? I mean, it's uh, teaching you things, too, which is a value in itself. And yeah. You're obviously having fun. But do you know for certain that podcasts are paying for yourself right now? So, so you, know, you know what's funny is I, I just went over the numbers the other day. And I, I check the numbers periodically. I don't obsess about the numbers. I think one of the, one of the reasons I think this is kind of a cool thing for me is I don't obsess about numbers. It's me. I just do it for fun. I do it to meet people. I, I do it to people find it entertaining. I know those people that listen to it. Well, it, extends your, it certainly extends your fear of influence. I mean, people know. And, and then I mean, there's yeah. a benefit to it. Yeah. yeah. But like when I first started doing it, I was like, hey, one, I, I like podcasts. I think it'd be fun. I think it'd be fun to just shoot the breeze with people. I can meet people. I've had people on the podcast that I, I mean, you, I know you. We've never sat down and talked for almost mm -hmm. two hours. I, and a lot of people come on the podcast. Some people I've never met. Like yeah. Steve, Moff, we just had Steve Moffat came on yesterday. I know Steve. I've met Steve a couple of times. I've never. Sat I down was and, disappointed you didn't have an ice cream waiting for me, but it, that's okay. It, well, it's in the fridge. Well, <laughs> the, the, uh, but but it's the idea that we, I, you know, some some people I I bring them on. And I don't know a lot about them. Gary Douglas, mm -hmm. I knew him. I, I think I started out the podcast saying, Gary, I I've talked to you a couple of times, but we haven't really talked before. He goes, right. you haven't really said much to me. He goes, there were, best line. He goes. There were a few words, but they were good words. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> that sounds like Gary. Oh, Gary, that's that's true. He's you've never, never been a bad a bad word from you towards me, but <laughs> but I've probably gotten like three sentences out of him ever up until that point, and mm -hmm. then it was just like hit hit play and let him go because yeah. the guy can the guy just knows the stuff. But um, podcast. So right now, this is episode 135. We've also done 90 what we call realty talk, which is just a very quick like 10 yeah. to 20 minute okay. me and, and a coworker here. We just kind of co-host it, and it's just... So you do one every week? I podcast? do Realty Talk once a week, because okay. it's simple. It's me and her, or me and another agent, okay. or someone within the office. Gail and Trombley show the goal is one a week. Right now, I'm ahead of that. This is 135. You're 135. We started recording in December of 18. Okay. I put out in January of 19, so we're about two and a half years in. I put one out every single week, and this includes doing absolutely nothing during the pandemic for wow. uh, for about uh, for about two and a half months. Wow, that's um, fantastic! And I, I, I didn't want to do um, every guest that I've done is in house. I haven't done anybody by Zoom. I haven't done so that's why my reach is a little less. Because that's when yeah. I talked about you. Look, you're in Florida, but hey, Mark, are you coming into town? Because there's a benefit to being in person. Um, you know, a few feet away versus an, a screen. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, you lose a little I've bit. I've done of, Zoom meetings. Not the same. They're not, as, not the same. And I like being in a room. There's no cell phone. We're not checking things. It's yeah. just like, I don't know what's going on in my life outside of this right now. Because it right. allows you to strip down a conversation. Right. But to answer your question, we're at 10,200 and change downloads lifetime. Out of that 10,200, 1,000 of those downloads have come in the last 30 days. Really? So when you talk about a spike, 10% of my all-time downloads so have come in. So in the upwards. So we're upward. starting, yeah, and it's, it's constantly done, I've been like that. And what was funny is when I first put it out, and I go back to the first 10 podcasts, I was lucky to break 10 downloads. It was like five downloads, six downloads, seven downloads, and, and one of them might have been me just checking to make sure it was recording. You know, like, I mean, it's, but it, there wasn't a lot. And I was like, you know what? I'm not doing it for numbers. I'm doing it because I think it's fun. I get to meet people. There's a benefit to me. If people think it's entertaining, great. And if they download it, they probably watch at least a portion of it. Is that what you're They thinking? listen to a portion of it. Listen they can listen to the whole thing, whatever the case might be. Uh, this month alone, I have two podcasts that are over 100 downloads. I have one that's in the 90s. Um, How long? It? it must be a big download. I, I know nothing about technology. We've, we've been here for a while. 
hour and 40 minutes. Wow, my wife's going to kill me pretty soon. She's okay. out shopping with my grandson. Okay, well, we're, we're, we're almost done. Cause I, <laughs> but we got, how long does it take to download it? Uh, seconds, instantly. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow, that's cool. This will take me after, I'll cut it probably tonight, take top to bottom 15 minutes. No kidding. And it's not, and it's, I'm saying 15 minutes to record it, mix it, yeah. download it, do a couple social media posts and post it, about 15 minutes. They say authors are supposed to have podcasts, but I've never dared to go in that direction. I can talk to you about how to do it. It's not the whole setup for you to do a podcast is, is very cheap. Once you learn how to do it, you can then find a niche about historical fiction and you can talk about it. Your speeches that you do when you go out to libraries, put it online, you put it out there, people search by that, you promote it. Hey, I'm Mark Berry, I'm an author. I also host a weekly podcast or I do it twice a week. Talk about whatever. And, and you might you might go through and it's not historical fiction, you might talk about the, one of the battles you Well, I and, may call you if your rates are good. So a consulting fee, I, yeah. <laughs> for, for you, we'll give you a really good rate, Mark. All right, so be good. good. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's the idea that you can build up the audience. And I haven't done anything but organically posting. And, and if somebody shares it, then that kind of spreads the word. If you share it, it spreads the word for your podcast. I have people that just start listening to it that like, hey, I've never listened I, to it, but I now I want to listen to it. see that over time, I think it would really it pay off. Yeah. I've been doing it for two and a half years, so we're talking about 135. And I'm now getting to the point where if I put out a podcast... It's getting downloaded about 40 to, I'd say 40 to 50 times, definitely 40 times, maybe 50 times. A really like low one is 30 something, which is crazy because back in the day, yeah, I could right. only get 10. Silly question. Do you do a podcast? Can you do a podcast just by yourself? Would you? Oh, yeah. Do most people have guests? Both. You can do whatever. You can do both. Yeah. I mean, you, and again, it, it, there's nobody, nobody. I find myself more interesting than most guests, but. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, but the thing is for you. I'm just kidding. Is, but, it, but I like, to, I like a conversation. Yeah, I but I've too. done podcasts, the Realty Talk ones, all by myself because it's yeah. like, hey, I don't have a guest. I'm just going to, I want to keep consistent. I'm going to do it, you know, but I want to go and I want to make sure I'm putting something out. So I might just talk about my, you know, is there a real estate bubble? That might yeah. be my topic. And I just, mm -hmm. I, I just spew my thoughts. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Um, this, I don't know what we're going to talk about. If you didn't bring this book, I never, you know, we would have talked about it, but I wouldn't be able to flip through the pages. So that's okay. That's, that's my different. brilliant marketing. It's good. I like that. <laughs> and, but it's a lot of these things that, you know, kind of get dropped in and we just kind of roll with the punches. And I think you're someone that could easily do this if you, and like I said, I, I'm more than happy to walk you through it. And it's, well, it's thank you. I appreciate it's not, that. it's not that hard. If I, like I said, if I can do it, you can do it. And it's, but it's consistency. You just make sure you do it and, and plug it over time. Well, as your father would probably tell me, I have other marketing initiatives that I know yield results and I'm busy working in those. But one of these days I'll probably have to take a long, deep, hard look at uh, podcasts. Pod yeah. Maybe and, even a blog. I don't understand those either, but. Well, the, the thing with blog, it, you got to think it's a written word, which is, it's, it's reading. Yeah. Podcast. The benefit of a podcast, you can do it in the. I mean, I listen to him in the car. I listen to him while I work. Yeah, I, I suspect I, a lot of people. I listen to him mowing the lawn. I listen to him doing house stuff. Yeah. I, I listen to him. You name it. I played golf the other day by myself. I had a. I just had a headphones in. I was listening to a podcast while sure. I was playing. You hit a golf shot and you just listen between the Makes shots. Sense. And, and it, for me, it's conversation. I I listen to. This, I'm a creature of habit. I listen to the same music they've been listening to since high school. It hasn't changed. Still, my jam bands. I like. I've, I've heard each song a thousand times. So it's like all this new podcast changes it up and keeps me interested and in flying the wall. So, um, but can I track it? I can see the downloads. Has it increased my business? I That's harder to tell. Well, I can't say. And this is a lot of stuff with branding. Uh, this talk with. Mark Berry, am I going to have three leads calling about listing the property because I talked to Mark Berry? No, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I hope it does. Not going to happen. What's, but what's, what will happen, I talk to you. You listen to it. Someone sees it. Someone now listens to it. Someone then – I mean it's, it's, it's all these little touches, touch points, touch points, touch, touch points. 
talk to this person, talk to this person. Then I run into somebody now at a chamber of commerce event and then I could talk to them. And then I have a background with this person. Then, hey, I heard you talk to so-and-so on the podcast. Are they, now you're a connector. Now, Now you become this person that in that in that spider web of people, you're now on the inside where you now have the more spokes on the wheel. I used to simplify. I would say I would categorize a lot of my activities as increasing my profile. And when I was active exactly. in business, I did a lot of things to increase my profile. I couldn't quantify what business, if any, I got from it, but I knew my profile was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that helps because then your calls got returned quicker. Uh, you were able to open more doors. Uh, and uh, it just eventually accumulated to lots of good things. It took me about 30 years to increase my profile, but I got there eventually. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've been doing this since my 11th year in real estate. When I first came in, nobody knew me. And it was one I just didn't know. Well, you're only 14 at the that's, time. That's right. right? Yeah. It was right, right around the ice cream day. So, but, if no, <laughs> but if nobody knew me and I wasn't putting myself out there, now flash forward 10 years, now people, mm-hmm. I've, there's plenty of people saying, that guy knows everybody. And it's yeah. like, how did I go from the kid that nobody knew to now – but it's just consistency over time. That's and, right. and it's the Takes willingness time. it's the willingness to reach out to people exactly. and, and wanting to meet people. Well hopefully this interview won't have ruined your profile. Hopefully it's just it's it's we're just we're just ticking up. It's just like you said, it, it's just going up and up. We're getting that well, rung on the ladder going. Thank up. you for having me, Gil. Yeah, I really was, appreciate this it. This was great and uh Mark, if you can, please plug anything you have. Where can people find you if they're interested about the book, if they're interested about a talk? I have a website called markberry.com. Barry is spelled differently, as you know, B-A-R-I-E. And if you want to order a book, you want to find out about me, read a lot of what I've written, special segments, special discounts. I have in a contest. Every About every three months, I give away some money. Just go to markberry.com. That's the extent of my commercial. Beautiful. And we'll put it all in the show notes. Mark, I appreciate this. It was great. Thank you very your much. Brain, but I, I'm excited. I, I, again, I promise I will read this. And once I do, <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you a gl- glowing review on maybe Amazon or whatever whatever Perfect. I can do to, to bump you up. I'll pay so, you for that interview. There you go. So, um, so that is episode 135 with Mark Berry. Thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. If you want to reach me, you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.